coming up in this episode. If I wanted to do a startup on, um, you know, an app for pregnant women to help mm. them with, you know, the nine month pregnancy journey, I probably it's not a good fit for me unless I was to partner up with a lady who maybe she's had eight kids and she's like, I always have the same problem. And I know I, I have an idea about a technical problem and I would pair yeah. up with them to help her solve it if I cared enough about it. You know, really own the problem. Don't go and solve a problem in an area you have no experience of. You have to make a lot of mistakes for yourself in order to understand the importance of them, hearing them from other people. You know, it's just like your parents telling you, you know, what you should and shouldn't do in life, right? You're still going to go out there and do the exact fucking thing they told you not to do. Oh, yeah. You need to learn for yourself. And and, <laughs> and so, you know, that's part of it. You've got to make exactly. your own mistakes. Especially in the early days. Like, you cannot test everything. It's impossible. Yeah. You have to go on 90% plus assumptions and go i think if i do this then people will like it the founders unplugged podcast how are you doing? Uh, i'm good how are you i am well thanks can you hear me i can yeah you're a bit like it sounds like you're in a tunnel a bit is that a new headset are we recording? I can swear you can cut this bit out, right? Okay, we can do. We might leave it in for authenticity. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so, uh, hang on. I don't use Google Meets enough. So, uh, should I just blur my background so that people don't? If you want. Wondering. It's up to you. There's nothing there. That's fine. Um, is that like a Peloton or a, you know, some sort of bike you got in the background there? It is indeed. Exercise nice. bike. It's not the fancy Peloton one. No, those are very fancy. Yeah. Yeah, that was the, the subscription price on that was what um, put me off, to be honest. Mm. Um, let me just, I'm just going to change my microphone though. Hang on, so you can probably hear me clearer. It does sound like it's coming from the, your microphone on your headset, but it's... Um... It's it's new and it shouldn't not do that. It's weird. It's fine with Zoom, but it's not fine with something else. How's right, that's, that sounds better. Okay, that's using the webcam mic. Okay, let's see how it goes. Well, I mean, if you can't hear me, uh, testing, testing, one, two, three. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. I can hear you. It's all good. Uh, there's my two options, this one and that one. So yeah, well, yeah, I think this sounds fine. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's good. I, 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 at the end of the day, I can hear you in both. That's the most important thing, right? So that's that's the main thing. And uh, yeah, try this one. Is, is it better now or is it better now? That testing, testing, testing. One, two, three. That's very echoey. Testing, testing, testing. One, oh, two, that's three. much better. That's much better. Okay. Yeah, that seems to have reduced echo. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, maybe we will cut. I don't know. I Technology don't know. is not my forte, you know. <laughs> yeah. Come often on. the case with tech founders, right? right. <laughs> anyway, look, it's it's good to have you on, man. Um, and good to see you again. Um, yeah. Uh, how, how have things been since we last uh, caught up? What have you been up to? Um, trying to enjoy a bit of the summer, as and where it's not pissing with rain. Um, yeah. Just uh, onwards and upwards of everything, really, I guess. Uh, Good. Got some new clients, some new opportunities, some custom work, some sorts of fun things. So Good. Well, look, before we get into it, like, why don't we, uh, this is like about the only one piece of structure I have in this entire thing. Why don't you introduce yourself uh, for those listening slash watching um, and, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about you and, and, um, and the business. Sure. So a uh, brief history of me. I was... Uh, born, raised in London. Uh, I went to university up in Leeds, uh, did computer science there, and uh, I graduated first class honours um, from Leeds University, left there and joined a technical graduate programme, Thompson Reuters, which was, was very interesting, put me through different areas of the business, including a little stint abroad, six months in Tel Aviv, 
Um, and then I came back to London. I was offered a role as a product manager in New York. So off I went to New York back in 2011. Um, and I became a product manager there. I started working in the news division there, working on different technical products, the API, the live streaming systems and things like that. Um, and kind of worked my way up through product management, um, senior product manager, so on and so forth, um, till around 2015, which is when I decided to return to London. Um, came back to London, was promoted up to director of enterprise video, which uh, I did for a few years, um, building products like um, Reuters uh, Insider. It's kind of uh, the Bloomberg TV equivalent, you'd think. All right. Uh, at Reuters, which is like a financial video news streaming platform, uh, oh, as well wow. as the uh, editorial management system for live video streaming all over the world. So we mm -hmm. rebuilt that from the ground up on the cloud, which is perfect timing for COVID. Um, but then, yeah, um, after a few years here in London, I started kind of um, looking to buy property, actually. Um, you know, saved up loads of money and I could borrow loads more. So um, I started trying to look around, figure out what things were worth and was pretty blown away by the kind of... Um, the backwards nature the property valuations would take in in this country um and so i did what i thought was a sensible thing which was try and solve the problem myself think i could do a better job than this um and so fast forward a few more years and um landworth is out there now in the market um we have customers we basically were a property valuation platform and uh it's uh there's a light page uh it's property valuation platform helps to value any property around the country just like a surveyor would it's kind of a desktop valuation um you just do it in a, in a couple of minutes for um much much cheaper than a, a survey would cost obviously if you get a subscription package things get even cheaper but um as greg is here is exploring our, our maps we have heat maps across the country we have a search tool we have a valuation tool and so it really helps to give you kind of an impartial view of the market like what is stuff actually worth not what is an estate agent telling me it's worth or what he can sell it for um and um yeah, so the majority of our customers now are sort of the professionals, like developers, um, investors, lenders, people like that, who are valuing properties day in, day out. Um, they need this tool, saves them loads of time, gives them better confidence, gives them more data. And, you know, I think the saying that data is the new oil, kind of mm. quite true in a lot of ways. So um, the more you know, the more um, power you can have in a conversation, really. And, and um, you know, even to the point now where people are challenging survey evaluations and they are having them overturned or, or, or changed um, based on the data that we're providing them with, so. Right, so what's making your data more unique than say the data that was traditionally being used? Like what are you pulling from that makes it as accurate as it is? Well, so the, the, the data sources themselves are um, similar, you know, synonymous with a lot of what other people are using. Um, I guess the value, add that we're doing is is a couple of main areas one would be the derivatives of the data so um you know i'll, I'll loosely throw the word ai around so that we have some some artificial and intelligent algorithms that do some smart stuff with yeah. um different bits of the data you know it's not like a holistic oh, it's a chat gpt it's all in one ai but we use bits of ai in different um aspects of the platform for example um we read floor plans um, so there's a simplistic neural network that runs to look at a floor plan and extract out the size from there that we can then use into calculations and things. That's um, very smart, yeah. Yeah, so that's one. Um, we have our whole model in general that, that produces the price per square foot around the country, and that's like a system we retrain that every month. As new data comes out from land machine, we feed it into it, and very quickly we, we update all of our databases and algorithms and things uh, accordingly. Mm -hmm. So we kind of create this extra level of, of data that helps users arrive at the 
the the final numbers that they're looking for um, faster. Uh, so, for example, when we have a, compar a list of comparables, we can say, well, these ones are the best comparables. We look at several different data points. We give a grading to each comparable and say, these are the A grade comparables. These ones you're going to want to focus your time and attention on. Don't worry about the Cs and the Ds because they're just not similar. And that kind of stuff helps. It just saves you more and more and more time. Um, so that, that that's part of it, I would say, is this derivative data. And the other part is the user interface or the user experience, um, which you know, over the last several years, UX has become a bigger and bigger thing. It's a whole industry on its own now. Mm. Um, it's really important how you present data and, and the workflow to the users to make the tools easy to use, um, nice to use if in, in some ways. Yeah, um, yeah. So they actually enjoy the searching they're doing, not just, um, it just doesn't feel like some big data analysis tool. It's not a big Excel spreadsheet which scares people off. It's actually right. there and it's friendly and it's, it's easy to use. Um, yeah. So, a There's bit like a what ChatGPT did with the way it sort of enabled people to interface with large language models. It just made it accessible. It made it uh, it made it a pleasure to deal with as opposed to a nuisance. Yeah, you didn't need a degree in order to operate the bloody thing. Like yeah, if you can speak a language, you can use ChatGPT. It's yeah. absolutely right. It's um, that's part of the reason for its mass adoption. Um, mm. The user experience matters massively. And yeah, Lambda, we have it. A little guide and we do some demos and things like that but actually mm. a lot of people just pick it up and just start using it and um, yeah. they get the hang of it usually yes exactly that that's a good user experience i can i say to people did you ever read the user manual for facebook or instagram or TikTok? Right. like right. no you picked it up and you just got the hang of it really yeah. really quickly uh that's a good user experience uh, mm. where you don't have to pick up documentation or no one likes reading manuals um yeah you know, they sort of the help the helping part comes in later maybe where i would sit down with someone and show them that oh, there's this button over here and there's actually a button over there and it does this and does that and you become a kind of a, a power user if you will yeah of course but, yeah that's like you know moving from intermediate to advanced kind of thing that's like that's a, just a different thing we're having funny enough the same discussion with uh with my startup about uh our user experience where we're nearing the end of our uh, perhaps our final sprint before kind of our uh, soft launch, I guess you could say, our beta launch, and uh, yeah, a lot of what we're talking about now is like, what can we refine to just, to just yeah, make it make it intuitive? To, because a lot of stuff we're you know we're finding, oh wait a minute, we need to explain this several times to our developers, which means <laughs> our users are going to need to explain it to yeah. them several times. So like, we need to make it easier. So yeah, it's a very important part of it. So I mean, you, you focus groups and that kind of stuff on those is, is really powerful. That's the kind of thing where yeah. you just you sit down with the user and you go, you don't say, okay, this is how you use the product. You say, I want you to achieve this goal. Yeah. I want you to give me a PDF report of this or tell me this number. And you watch them try and figure out how to do it. That's usually how you find those weak points where they where they get stuck. You don't shout them, go, no, 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 you're being stupid. It's it's, right. it's you're being stupid as the developer or the product manager because well, it's not stupid, but you know, I'd be a bit mean. Yeah. Um, it, you you start to build up assumptions because you've designed the thing, so you know how it works. It doesn't mean it's obvious for anyone else. Exactly. Um, and, yeah, you know, I've worked with some founders over the years. My God, they've <laughs> they've you know they, they would want they would bend over backwards in order to create an onboarding process that was to educate them on how to use the product. When it was just like, dude, you've just got to make the product easy to use. Like right. we shouldn't have to spend three hours with someone to explain how to do something. Like that's friction, there's a problem, yeah. attack the problem, but they're so married to the idea of the way it's built and they can't let it go and that's a huge problem. So is that something that you did then? Did you work through focus groups when developing the platform then? So not officially, I would say. Right. Not like More like friends and family focus groups, which, yeah, is, yeah. which is good. It's because, still, yeah. serves the same purpose, yeah, absolutely. So I, I have the mother test. Um, right, yeah, which, yeah. You know, I think, 
I definitely coined it many years ago, and I realized someone's written a book about the same thing, I think. But um, oh, really? it's, okay. if my mum can figure out how to use it without yeah. me guiding her, then it's probably okay for yeah, most yeah, people, yeah. right? You know, maybe if, I don't need the grandmother test. That's a little bit too far. Right. But, you know, my mum's, she's smart. She's not the most technical savvy of people. I think it took her a good 15 years to figure out how to use the Sky Remote. So, right, yeah. Which is pretty, you know. Um, so if she can figure out how Landworth works without me prompting her and telling her to click on, then I'm like, it's pretty, pretty close to where it needs to be. Um, yeah, I think I think I might have to do that with my platform with my mum. My mum's a very, um, very passionate French woman, uh, a little little French fire rocket, I suppose you could call her. And uh, and I, you know, I, I've seen her try and battle, like you said, with the Sky Remote, things like that, and it it gets it gets violent pretty quick. Mm. um so you know it, I, I think that would be an interesting technique I, I might have to steal that from you do the mother test and see what happens by all means because um, if anyone's going to be brutally honest about it it's going to be my mum. <laughs> yeah uh, that's exactly it your mum. they won't sugarcoat it too much I yeah tell your mother but if she's a not my mum. Lady, I don't, yeah, <laughs> she's so, like what is this fucking thing why doesn't it fucking work right <laughs> that's what it should be like you know with a very th thick french accent obviously yeah yeah uh, the other thing i'd just <laughs> add as well for you for anyone that's listening like you know the other thing's really important is, is analytics like this is not a one and done type thing this is a constant refinement type thing where you're always got to make it better always always figure it out like mm. i mean you know like i said there's a button there i have to explain to someone that that button's there that does something well maybe i need to make that button a bit more prominent and and this yeah. sort of stuff You'll never figure it out if you keep trying to make the, the perfect user experience you'll never launch um mm. you know there's a quote from um it's reed hoffman he says um if you're basically if you're embarrassed by if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product then you you've launched too late yeah you yeah. should be embarrassed you really want to get it out there as soon as possible make sure you've got analytics in, in installing the app um there's a whole suite of different applications you can use for that from mixed panel to heap to full story google even doing some upgrades and stuff now get it out look at what people are doing look at pain points look at rage clicks and things like this and mm -hmm. that can help you to then further refine the user experience but just don't expect that it'll be able to be perfect um yeah it's, it's a quest for perfection um yeah yeah yeah, and, yeah. good uh, advice very good advice out. i think that's that's often the, the thing that people misinterpret about when people say you know working fast in startups meaning you know um skip over on like like implementation the implementation of these analytics side of things you can't you can't power through that and do that wrong you've got to do that right you've got to take the time to do that right but in terms of actually delivery to market accepting that things aren't going to be perfect those are the kind of things you can act quick on it's about in fact i had the uh, same conversation with a pro bono session with with someone recently when they, they were kind of like there was a bit of confusion over this idea of going fast or going slow it's like well you know it's a contradiction you know people are telling me to go fast in one area but but also don't skimp the details on this area it's like well what what do you mean and it's like well you know that's a hard thing to to explain but essentially what it means is when it comes to the fundamental nuts and bolts operationally for your business you can't you can't you know speed past that some things have to be very very solid but when it comes to delivering something in order to get feedback the quicker you get that feedback the better right and i suppose that's the Absolutely. way i kind of frame it in my mind but but just to go back to something you said right at the beginning you this was born the, the idea of the concept of Lambeth was born out of your experience in trying to purchase was it land or a property you were, you were it was property at the time actually property um, did you manage to find your property in the end i did yeah okay good yeah. so it, it wasn't like, it like this whole time that you were just like you're, you're still building this in the hope that one day you could use it to find your property it's like you, found, no. you, did, you did muddle through the, the the options out there to find it then in the end yeah exactly i did not get stuck in analysis paralysis for too long. <laughs> I did a little bit, I will say, because right. um, there was a bit of like figuring things out. But I mean, just to dig a little bit more into the Landworth kind of nuts and bolts, like yeah. the, the core algorithm there are 
AI um, sort of intelligence there, if you will, what it's really doing is is looking at land values. Um, you know, I basically yeah. use the example that when people say my property's doubled in value, right? Oh, I bought my property 10 years ago. It's doubled in value. How great is that, right? Mm. Um, the property doesn't change in value itself. It's the land that the property's built on that will be changing in value. Maybe you've refurbed the property, but if you haven't changed it at all, then the bricks and mortar, if anything's depreciated, right? The land that it's built on um, has become more desirable because people have moved in the area and paid more and new builds have gone up and new waitrose or a new train station or a new school or a new park. These bring up the value of land and if your property's there, it will go up in value accordingly and capital value increases. And so we realized this early on that really it's it's those land values. And so our algorithm actually tracks price per square foot around the country. And we use that as a proxy to determine what the price of the property would be depending on what's built there, how big is what's built there and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. That's one of the ways that we will value property. Um, and so there's this core kind of landworth algorithm that determines price per square foot, like the averages and the ranges in any given area. So when I was buying my property here, um, I was basically making offers. Obviously, there's the whole negotiation process. I was making offers based around price per square foot. And they're like, why is he offering us these bizarre numbers? Like it wasn't wrapped to the nearest 10,000, 5,000. It was to the nearest few hundred and stuff. And uh, yeah. I guess someone looks and I explained to them why. Because I said, I know what this should be worth. And in right. the end, I, I won't give the deal, but I took a nice hefty chunk of discount off the price because I have the data to, you know, support. It wasn't me just plucking. Oh, I'm just going to take fifty thousand off, and off of that, I was actually doing it based on data. And it was much so, so you weren't making friends yeah. of estate agents at the time, is what you're telling me. Um, but maybe more so now that you're facilitating. <laughs> facilitating yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a doggy dog world buying and private selling properties. I would say that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's interesting. So, so I mean, that that would then, to me, uh, insinuate that 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 isn't really a, an approach that's being taken when valuating properties from in the current market that they're not really like you said that that's a an incredibly important factor when when valuating a property but that so is it is it the case that that's not really something that they're using that well or is it just because there hasn't been a land worth before where they've been able to effectively analyze that data and and come up with those valuations more accurately is or is it a mixture of both you know, depends who you're talking to, I think. Um, right. You know, ultimately, it's with the estate agent. Um, they'd like to know what a property is really worth, like a fair market value for the property. But they're always going to try and get more than that because that's their job yeah. is to represent the seller. Yeah. So um, it is, you know, estate agents aren't our best clients. I will say that we have some on board, but not they're not our best customers um, because they're not spending their own money. Um, mm -hmm. Ultimately, someone who's spending their own money will get the most value out of Landworth because it's going to give them the informed the data to inform their decisions. So whether that's a developer spending money to build or a lender who's um, lending their money to someone to build as well or a buyer or whatever it might be. Sellers, obviously, if I want to sell my house, I want to know really what it's worth. Um, what it will fetch on the open market is slightly different um, because mm. ultimately a property is only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. But, yeah. um, you know, for a seller, it's going to give you an idea of like, this is probably what it's worth. And then typically a seller would add 10%, for example, and then list it at that price. Um, with the expectation that they might get offers, they'll get offers with with some kind of discount. Um, mm. Of course, the flip side is is I think it's worth X. I think it's worth five hundred grand. I'll list it at four fifty to generate interest, perhaps create a bidding war. Mm. Uh, this can work. Uh, just different estate agents and people have different techniques and styles, and it also depends on the activity in the local market. You know, if you've got a very unique property um, mm. and it's one of a kind in a highly desirable area, you can you know, ask price to be higher, but if it's actually a more competitive market where there's similar properties, maybe you want to start lower to get those things fitted up. So mm. there's a lot of psychology that goes into it. I will say that it's, um, yeah. 
property valuations is very different to my my former world life in fintech of sort of stock valuations where um obviously there is obviously the, the value is based on expected future values and things like that there's a lot more complexity in it but it's a lot of numbers less psychology mm. um, and every single stock every apple stock for the most part every apple stock is very kind of same as every other apple stock so it's a completely homogeneous asset whereas property everything's different right mm. in a building you've got a flat on floor seven and a flat on floor eight it'd be identical but they're on different floors with slightly different views it will change the value now the view it has depends on the person that's buying it and you know whether they're there at the same right time so on and so mm. forth there's all these factors that come into it that affect that price that someone's willing to pay there's a lot more subjective attributes to yeah. to, to, the, to it yeah the science value to it yeah exactly so what we're really determining is like and the highest probability that a property will sell at a given price there is no certainty until it actually goes in the market and it sells and the transaction goes through and the money's been sent that's a mm. you know that's what we base our algorithms on the sold data price uh, the sold price paid data sets mm. um but yeah it's a it's a probability of the price uh, yeah rather than a this based, based on the more tangible uh data points that are accessible to you as opposed to the the the, the subjective uh untangible data that i suppose like the estate agents or the buyers and the sellers will add on top of that so yeah. would, would you mentioned that the there you know estate agents aren't necessarily your main prior primary I can't speak. I've spoken too much today. Primary um, sort of users, but but more developers and 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 buyers and things like that. But so, but who who is your your main client? Like out of that, like is it is there any particular one, or is it quite evenly spread across there? Or you know, what does that look like? Um. So you know, uh, without going into deep numbers, I'd say it's a reasonably good split between um, the kind of um, independent property professionals. Um, so that's kind of like your developers um people who are flipping houses perhaps right. or buy to let landlords so you know husband and wife teams sort of that kind of you know two brothers for example mm -hmm. um so we've got those sort of smaller um customers who they usually sit on our, our starter package and uh they you know they, they might only do two or three deals a year perhaps mm. one two three deals a year um so they're doing a lot of assessment but not that much actually transacting um and then we have a split with like the sme businesses um so they're sort of larger organizations 20 30 40 50 people perhaps um where they typically have like a dedicated team maybe one or two or even three people who are doing this type of analysis um for them it's slightly different but they are doing that same job more efficiently which means they can look at more jobs um and for mm -hmm. them we're also helping them to kind of reject the so for the lenders for example we've got a you know decent amount of um uh, property lenders who are yes, uh, giving money to people to do these types of projects, what will happen is, is they'll get a lot of requests for, um, I want to borrow a million pounds for project XYZ, and I'm going to give you, we're going to make one and a half million, I'm going to give you back a load of money in 12 months from now. Um, a lot of people try their luck, right? They fudge the numbers to make it look like a better deal than it is otherwise. So we help those sort of SMEs to, to reject those bad deals right. far, far faster. Don't spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour assessing a deal which just won't stack up from the get-go. Like, mm. Figure mm. that out in a minute or two and move on to the next one. There's a so, risk management aspect of it as well. Absolutely. Then. Yeah. And 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 the people you're serving with the product now, did you, did you already know that these were... Uh, individuals sectors whatever that you were going to be serving when you first set out or did you have a very different perception as to who was probably going to be uh your 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 users i guess um when you first built the product good, good question yeah um 
Noah did not know this whatsoever. Um, so, you know, a little bit more about me is really, I didn't know much about property before mm. uh, five or so years ago, before I started looking into it. You know, I had a lot of experience in different other sectors, but um, just never had to interact with property. So I didn't know too much about it. So I started off doing, which I think is a good for a startup founder to do is, is solve my own problem, which was I wanted to buy. I was a first time buyer and I just had no clue. And it just, as far as I could see, everyone's trying to get my money from me. Um, <laughs> and no rely, no one is giving me reliable information about this stuff. You yeah. Know? Um, no one's telling you reliably why it's that much money. It's just, it's that much money. Exactly. You go on yeah. meetings with estate agents and everything's a great deal. This, this property perfect for you, everything. And I was like, this is going yeah. down like a broken record. Um, <laughs> like, but he's trying to sell me stuff. He's not. He's not got my best interest at heart. I couldn't yeah. trust him from the get go. So his I commission like, is a is what he's interested. Exactly. In. <laughs> exactly. Um, they're trying to sell you stuff. So um, I just thought to myself, "Where's the website I go to where I type in the address of the property and it gives me the information I need?" Um, yeah. I couldn't find one. There were some slightly better tools than sort of than Zoopla and Rightmove. Um, things like Mouse Price and you know, House Prices, um, but it still wasn't the view of the market I wanted. So. Mm. Because I, I I had the the technical chops to figure things out, and so I I chopping away, coding away, um, playing with things, building a beta, um, and the beta was less of a valuation tool, more of a property sourcing tool. It just helped you find the best deals in the market, and it it would assess what's like on the market right now in real time by looking at floor plans, as I said, and things like that. Mm. Um, so I originally had set off to sort of solve the problem for the average consumers, um, and I still very much care deeply about those users. The problem is, mm. is people don't buy and sell property. Well, they do it on average every sort of seven or eight years. Mm. So if you can capture one of these users and get them on your platform using it, then great. You know, three months, six months later, they buy their property and they go off and you've lost them as a user for, for a while. Yeah. Um, this is a very hard way to build a business if you have that type of transient user. So mm. I, you know, I met lots of people. I have a lot of connections in property regardless. And I talked to people and I guess kind of started feeling things out and, and pitching to estate agents, pitching to developers, pitching to investors, pitching to sources, pitching to surveyors. Um, you know, there's even government departments that find this stuff very useful. Um, and I get a lot of positive feedback, but you know, the real, you really know when you're solving a problem, someone when they're prepared to pay for it. Um, mm. A lot of people will use tools for free. A lot of people say, this is great, amazing. Yeah, yeah, I definitely buy this. But when you ask them to put their money where their mouth is, they, they don't. Mm. Um, and so that was the, the beta was free and we started off with there and I got a lot of feedback from that. And that's where we created kind of the, the main like pro, pro version, the, the version we sell now. Um, but it was when I decided to ask people to pay £100 a month, um, for example, was sort of one of our starting price points around that £99 a month. Who would do that? Who said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. And then who was like, oh, I don't know. Can you give me a discount? I have to think mm. about it. They're, your, they're not your good users, right? Yeah. Um, and either you need to evolve the product or you need to you know, focus down the market that, that's, um, that's actually biting your hand off. And so, yeah, mm. developers and, and investors and lenders, we found the best traction there. And they're the types of users who do, do keep coming back. As I said, they're not, they're not doing it every seven years. They're in the, the business for, for a while. Um, and so yeah we retain those types of users it's something because it can also be the people who sort of am and are about it can also be indicative of the problem uh, it's a, of a problem that is of offering a free version first mm. which is it can get people used to it being free so sometimes that that information you get in response to offering it and saying okay now you have to pay for it it may not be an actual 
a good representation of what the rest of the market might say, just those individuals who had free access up until that point. And now they suddenly feel a bit hard done by because you're saying that we want money. That's the only problem. So I suppose you have to extrapolate that out as well of like, okay, are they actually doing it for that reason? Or is it because they don't get enough value from it uh, as these particular type of users? And that's quite a, could be quite a difficult thing to to reconcile and try and discover, right? Yeah, well, it, what we did in our case was was the beta stayed free, and we we just we started sending messages out to people saying this is going away on this date, right? Um, but we have the new version here. Oh. So. Excuse me, well, that came out of nowhere. <laughs> uh, um, so uh, yeah, we we basically it was upgrade to the new version, the pro version, and pay for that. Um, the beta yeah. oh, right, use it up okay. until this date, and so it wasn't just like pay for this thing that you have for free. It was yeah, there's a new thing to pay for, which it's, does everything that you were doing and all of yeah exactly with something that's higher value that did more yeah. and so not all of our customers came for that journey as well uh we'll say that but but we did sort of uh upsell a few of them there and convert them into mm. subscribing customers um yeah that. And you can there there are other tips, tips and tricks you can do to, of to course. help encourage them along and discounts yeah. for six months 12 months stuff like that yeah see how you get on etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's interesting because your journey is and I, I, so i recorded another uh, podcast session this morning with um with a lovely gentleman called Ralph, who um, owns a, uh, a, a national window cleaning service that's built on a marketplace. It's very impressive, and you'll hopefully see the episode. It will be out before mm -hmm. this one. Um, uh, and we had the conversation that quite often comes up around, you know, foundership and, and entrepreneurialism as a whole, which is, you know, focusing on something that you know and that you understand and that you live and you breathe and so on, right? Which in his case, it was. He built a business uh, around... Uh, window cleaning because he he went into window cleaning and then he built this 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 massive business around it and this this wonderful idea and it's interesting we talked about that and i've talked about it with many many people before but there's always a but right there's always a but there are exceptions to that there are people who find something that they've had no real exposure to up until that point that suddenly captures them and they get hooked by and they get sucked into and they get absolutely you know, addicted to solving that problem, even though before that they never really had any exposure or interest in that. And this is you, right? Because this isn't like something that you've been building up to throughout your career. I suppose the aspects of it that that do fit that are the technical side, right? The data side, the the, the analytical side, that and that that's the bit that 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 seems to gel with this. This isn't like you've just woken up one day and said, I'm going to learn how to code and I'm choosing this particular path. This is a very, this is very specific to your skill set. So I suppose in that sense, it still fits that mold. But it is in an area that, like you said, you know, uh, you experienced this thing as you were doing it and then you were like, I'm going to go into it. And even now, it's still somewhat far removed from the original concept of, of helping the, the buyer. So I find that really interesting. I mean, do, do you not prescribe to that? general idea then or do you feel like it actually still does apply to you somewhere yeah no um so yeah a couple points to make i i do agree with you i think general advice for founders would be yeah if you have you know if there's a there's a domain that you are an expert in try and solve problems in that domain because you're the expert you know things you've got hopefully years and years of experience in it and you know the people and you know mm. you know what's going on and if you own that problem and you can go I, i've had this problem for the last five ten years and we know how to solve it that's the making of many good businesses um so i would always encourage you to do that you know you you really want to look for somewhere where you have an unfair advantage yeah look for those areas because if you know if i wanted to do a startup on um you know an app for pregnant women to help mm. them with you know the nine-month pregnancy journey 
I don't think I'm going to do a very good job. But I, I, you never I, know. You, might you never know. <laughs> but like, what is my unfair advantage? Because I've never been pregnant, right? So like, right. I probably it's not a good fit for me unless I was to partner up with a lady who maybe she's had eight kids and she's like, I always have the same problem. And I know I, I have an idea about a technical problem and I would pair yeah. up with them to help her solve it if I cared enough about it. That mm. would that would work. work. But yeah, that would be good advice generally to, to, to you know, really own the problem. Don't go and solve a problem in an area you have no experience of because yeah. it's challenging. In my case, you're right. I am a bit of an anomaly in this space. Um, but for exactly the reasons you said, it's I saw it as it wasn't a property problem so much as a data problem. Mm. Um, and you know, it's not property values that really, like I said, it's not what's changing. It's land values that are changing. And like right. who has accurately mapped out the value of land? Um, I don't think anyone else has because if you even look at um, the uh, you know Majesty's land registry, uh, land registry HMLR, um, and you look at their um, their statistics because they publish their own statistics, it's still based around average house prices and how mm. average house prices are going up and down, not land values, which is what's triggering those changes. Um, so everyone's kind of because that that's what people care about. They care about the property price because that's what they're buying and selling. Um, but mm. it's not really what's going on there, and so. You know, I very much looked at it as a data problem. Let's go and solve a data problem. That's what got me interested in it um, at first. And then property was was tangential. It was very important to me at the time. And like, yeah, it's, for most people, buying property is the biggest financial decision you will ever mm. make, right? It's the biggest yeah. financial asset you'll ever own. And, you know, where is the advice? Like, it's coming mm. from the state agents. This is mind-boggling to me. You know, you, you, you find, uh, I don't know, if I'm buying on Amazon now, people have these other websites which will track the prices of different products on a day-by-day-by-day -by -day -by -day basis so that you go i'm not going to buy it now i'm going to set a reminder on it and in you know 18 days time from now it's going to be at its historical low price and great mm. i've saved myself two pound fifty mm. right how much effort have you put in to save yourself two pound fifty right now mm. if i said to you well this website can help save you 25 grand off your purchase of your price maybe more you know what why do these websites not why, why are there not more of these websites that help you yeah, and, yeah. and i think oh, fundamentally it's a difficult problem um mm. because of the reasons we described and so um you know that's that's the data side of it it's a data problem in my mind a lot and, of it it. and it and it takes a data scientist to address it as opposed to a property expert to address it which is typically where people have probably been trying to address it from and, and not really Absolutely. Had yeah, it and reminds me it reminds me a lot of like you know you see these these big tech billionaires who get involved in a low, uh, sort of a whole range of different right. interests, you know, like uh, Elon Musk is the, the typical example for that. When you look at him and you're like, well, you know, what business does he have going into space exploration or going into automotive engineering or, you know, uh, any of these things, these, the, you know, robotics and all that kind of thing. And and I think, you know, with a lot of these people, they, they, similar to sort of what you've described there. This isn't to say, I'm not making a comparison between you and Elon Musk, by the way, or I, I could be. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind, but yes, I'm uh, not but, being uh, there yet. Depends how you feel about him as well. I know people have got mixed feelings on him, but um, but like, you know, they're, they're you know, if you ask, I'm sure if you were to ask him, I'm sure if I heard him talk about this in interviews, you know, he's been asking well, what gives you the right to go into these different spaces if this isn't your background. You know, people have spent their whole livelihoods in, in you know, space exploration, rocket engineering and so on. He's like, well, first of all, he hires the experts. He doesn't claim to be one, but he also does do a lot of reading on it. But he's approaching it from, you know, the ecosystem problem. He sees it as like, well, it's a bigger problem that he's trying to solve, isn't it? He's not just trying to solve the problem of space yeah. exploration. He's trying to approach it as a as a collective problem of like, you know, humanity's future and this, that and the other. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a smaller version of that in a sense of what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you've seen this uh, from, you know, from an outside of the box perspective of like, yeah, this isn't just a problem of property. This is a problem with data. And so 
approach it from that angle and see what happens. And then obviously, by the sounds of it, you you did that and you realized that that was the right approach and you just sort of scaled that from there. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm just like on the it's an odd know, comparison, I know, but yeah, it, it no, makes sense uh, in my head. <laughs> if you ever thought about it for a second, because I thought about it a while ago, it's like, okay, it's at least I'll just pick Tesla, SpaceX, and the Boring Company, and you're like, yeah. they're completely different. And I'm like, not at all. They're very similar. Yeah. The th the common thread is transportation, mm. right? It's getting from A to B in a cost-effective way and a good green for the environment. You know, uh, good for the environment, ideally. Um, Tesla's driving, SpaceX is, you know, rocket ships and Boring is going through the ground, but they all kind of interplay together. It's all around that. It's infrastructure. Yeah, that's, it's his, that's his concern. It's about infrastructure because he understands that as a fundamental, um, yeah. uh, fundamental part of, of the way that the world can move forward in a progressive manner. And we need to solve those those problems facing infrastructure. I mean, yeah, Absolutely. clean energy and all that's part of it to an extent with Tesla and so on. But moreover, it's about, well, how can we make them smart? How can we avoid accidents? How can we decongest the roads? How can we make them safer and faster and all that sort of thing that's what it comes down yeah, to and, you know so like uh, what i'd say coming back to myself as well though but you know the the interesting thing about this is, is so so i think the common theme through his stuff like you said infrastructure transportation logistics yeah with me and, and for what i've done at reuters um what i'm doing at lamworth and other things i've done in, as well in, in other spaces is it is around data you know data scientists like kind of lucy with a hat but um that's that's how i sort of see it you know if you if you saw my LinkedIn profile before, you know my experience now broad um, spans uh, fintech, Reuters, prop tech with Lamworth, and, and edtech as well, um, education mm -hmm. technology, which I do I do work on. And um, you know, to the point about staying in your lane, like I think it's important earlier in your career, but I actually think it is important to get a broad set of experience in different industries because, mm -hmm. you know, I have consciously done that. Um, it wasn't it, there was a little accident to it as well, but like. I'm happy getting this broad exposure to different industries. Um, who knows where we're going in the future? But like, you start to see the similarities between these industries. Like, data problems are quite pervasive throughout, you know, everything really. Um, yeah. Like, the bigger the company are, the, the more you might look at one of these big companies and go, "Wow, that's a well-run machine." And actually, you peel back the layers, you talk to you inside. They're like, "Oh my god, the pain I have to go through for this and, that, <laughs> yeah. and everything else." Right? Yeah. Trust me, as a consultant, I know that all too well. <laughs> Absolutely, big companies, yeah. big company problems, right? And a lot of yeah, that exactly. stuff can be data, and they get stuck mm -hmm. in these old ways of doing things with the sort of the legacy technology, and they have to keep maintaining it and stuff. Oh, if only we could just rebuild our database, which is yeah. not a quick thing at all. Well, and you can't um, be disruptive in anything if you're just right. staying in your lane, right? I mean, wh what are you going to, you're not going to reinvent anything if you're just continuously making the same thing. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, like I said, so, you know, I, I encourage people as they think about their career path and journeys, it, it's get a variation of experience, um, mm -hmm. go out of your comfort zone. It's good. If you, when you're out of your comfort zone, when it hurts, it means you're learning. Mm. in most cases yeah that is you know you will see things you will see the cross-pollination of ideas between things and it's like i said elon musk does this even with some of their ai engineers um they don't say come and work at tesla or come and work at spacex they say come and uh, i mean i haven't looked at the job ad but like come and work with me basically and you can work on tesla and spacex kind of jobs yeah. and what is he do gets the best ai engineers in the world mm. um he pushes them from google other places because they have that opportunity to work across different industries, but mm. kind of solve the same, you know, self-driving car and a self-landing rocket. Um, mm. I'm not an expert, but I'm I'm sure there's some similarities in there. There's got to be some, yeah. Learn, you know? yeah so, some probably significant differences too, but yeah. yeah I'm sure. <laughs> but it, it probably takes a, a, some some level of similar competencies in order to, 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 to work on those problems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
Well, I mean, it's good to know that you compare yourself to Elon Musk. Uh, it's a, a very humble. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you, you compared, I'm sure. Did I bring it up? Oh, yeah, it was me, wasn't it? Okay, I'll, I'll let you. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's a good role model. I've got my boring company hat somewhere or other. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but no, what you said about you know experiencing pain, like that—that—that's a really important thing. That um, you know, I'm always—I sound I like a broken record sometimes in some of these shows because I say the same things over and over again. But one thing I always say is, um, uh, even to clients and stuff, is you know, it, you've got to aim to be shit at something before aiming to be good at something. And you know that there, there's you know there's an important lesson there. Like with my son, for example, he's eight year old. Certainly, he actually uses this computer, this monitor I'm staring at. I let him use it every now and then. It's a quite a high spec PC and I let him use it recently to start learning how to use, uh, to use Blender, the 3D, uh, 3D rendering tool and animation tool and stuff because he was interested in it. And I saw, I caught him playing with MS Paint, you know, years ago on a crappy old computer he had and he would somehow manage to open up the 3D section of that and he was building stuff and I was like, how are you doing that? So when he was like six. So I gave him, so I said, all right, here it is. I've, you know, here's a login, here's Blender, see what you can do. Here's a tutorial on YouTube. He ended up, losing his project six times he was getting really frustrated you know he was like in tears at one point but he kept doing it and he managed to finish it and he managed to finish this project and it looks amazing i, I was astounded the fact that you know eight-year-old could create this thing and i was like how do you feel i asked him like when he did it i was like how do you feel now about all the times that you lost your work or it broke or whatever and he was like they're different now like i feel as bad now like it's, it was frustrating i was like right that's what learning is buddy <laughs> welcome to the real world like that's what learning is and now when it happens he gets frustrated but he's like it's all right i'm learning <laughs> you know? yeah yeah absolutely it's i mean it's it's very well, for, for an eight-year-old to be uh, self-reflective on it as he goes is is, is quite an achievement i'd say but yeah, yeah usually yeah. It's, it's the sort of stuff you that's one of the reasons on. why i encouraged him to do it because i was yeah. like this is a useful thing especially learning from a youtube video like because you know sure. learning how to learn is an extre extremely difficult thing to learn <laughs> yes. if you know what i mean Slightly you know? yeah exactly and yeah. that's i think it's the university it's the whole point of university in school is sometimes it's just learning how to learn um yeah yeah you know yeah there university. Stuff like that. yeah yeah exactly it can be highly targeted but it's it's a lot about proving you can listen and you can do what's needed and you can learn the facts and absorb it you know yeah. i mean how much of your out how, how how often do you use algebra in your day-to-day -day life yeah probably right. not very often but like you had to learn it um and um yeah like i said you, you always often look back on on things that you've done and say, wow, that was a really horrible time. And, you know, I, I've spoken to friends about this and coached them through stuff where they're like, can't believe I have to do this work. It's the, it's like, mm. I remember a friend of mine, he was, um, I won't mention his name to shout out, but like, uh, he, he, you know, 10 years in marketing, senior marketing person, 10 plus years, and he joined a new company. He had to go at, to a student fair and hand out flyers basically. Mm -hmm. And he was moaning about how he's beyond all this. And I was like, just, just suck it up and do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, he did um and it was painful for him and it was a learning lesson but you know when we talk about it six months later he's like you know it was actually really good to have done that because it was you know got his hands dirty and he mm. learned so much about from doing that that later he, he used in his day-to-day -day. Mm. um you know so like hindsight's always gives you a different viewpoint on these things but yeah uh, it, yeah it's important to get your hands dirty if you don't do that in certain businesses like for me in Lambeth you know I, I do cold calling right like I think 15 years experience, you know, director across the company's like, why should we be doing cold calling? Well, because I'm learning what the users really want to talk mm. to them. And that's invaluable. That's what actually separates out successful startups from 
build startups is that sometimes the founders just kind of don't want to get their hands dirty or they yeah. they, they, they hire someone to do it they pay yes. someone to a job they should be doing themselves yeah but you, you know I, I think i mentioned it to you before i do pro bono work a lot i do a lot of pro bono sessions with founders and one of the most common themes i get asked as a commercial advisor you know but they're often they're like i built this thing and uh, no one's buying it i ask you know very simply well what are you doing to sell it and more often than not they're like uh nothing because i will you know you, you're not above, just because you've got a title of CEO doesn't mean yeah. you're CEO, I'm sorry. What it means is you are the salesperson, you are the marketer, you are the operator, you are the developer, you are you are all of those things right now. And right now, what you should be focusing on is picking up the phone and making some fucking sales. That's yeah. your job, I think, you yeah. know? And people sometimes feel, well, they, they need someone like me quite often to just tell them how it is, yeah. tell them straight, first of all. Yeah. But, 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 but sometimes some people, a very small percentage, feel um, like they're above that. You know, some, a bit like your friend, they feel like, you know, I've done my time, you know, I did that or, you know, I, you know, yeah. I, I didn't get into running my own business to do that. I'll hire other people to do that. And it's like, well, no, man, like mm -hmm. your entire life savings has gone into this thing. You've got to sell it now. So sell it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Pull your finger out. Yeah, just do the hard jobs. And it's, it's the thing. It's, it's the hard job. It's the stuff you don't yeah. want to do. And people tend to avoid the things that they the things that you're avoiding the most is the thing you probably should be doing the most. Right. I yeah. That the other day. Um, yeah, yeah but my also, friend... like a lot of them don't know how to do it, and that, and that's the other thing as well. That often that's the next conversation for me is right. like they're like, okay, well, I had thought about that, and I do realize that now. But what, where do I even start? Like, what's the process? Like, you know, because there's all this talk, especially about you know, um, getting feedback from people and 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 picking up on the you know their their responses and refining your messaging, and it kind of goes back to that thing I said earlier of like just do it. Because if you're going to be shit at it, aim to be shit at it, and then you can be good at it later. But in the first instance, the thing that you're not doing is picking up the phone. So yeah. in the meantime, yeah. just pick up the phone. Like it's like going to like to, about going to the gym. So what am I going to do when I get to the gym? What am I going to work on? What muscle am I going to focus on? Doesn't matter. Get in the fucking door first. <laughs> like, awesome. Like, well, yeah. 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 Look, I mean, uh, you know, to the couple of things I'd say, I think it's Y Combinator. I did. Yeah, yeah, I followed their startup school syllabus for a while. Um, in mm. few days, you know, I think they said aim for at least five customer conversation or user conversations per week. That's a kind of a good minimum. That's you know, a very, yeah, that, I would definitely say that's a yeah. minimum, but that's good. Yeah, yeah. It's a minimum, absolutely minimum. But like, yeah. you want to have at least five user conversations, whether they're prospective users, current users, mm. you know, or, yeah. or just fresh users, whatever it is, just try and talk to five people and see and pitch them and stuff. That, that's a kind of good rule of thumb. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe, like, and share your thoughts in the comments. Um, but, you know, I'll, 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 I'll myself, I'm like, you know, I, I have a background in product and technology, um, not marketing. You know, I've done some product marketing, but when I was at Reuters, 50,000 people, you know, there were other people to do those parts of the jobs. I just had to interact with them to make sure that they were doing what they needed to be doing. Mm. Um, so when I built Lamworth, you know, I came in it from a very product and tech perspective and I, marketing was a bit of an unknown to me, right? Uh, my mm. friends will still laugh about it. You know, like, they're like, you need to do marketing. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do advertising. And they're like, no, no, like marketing. And I was like, advertising. And I, that was kind of my, it's been like a few years now, but like, that was my understanding of it. It was a very newbie kind of fresh understanding, um, which I had to grow and learn upon. And, and, and you know, there was painful um, journeys there uh, as, yeah. I, as I learned more and more about marketing. But yeah, exactly. I tried some stuff out. Mm. I, I don't think I aimed for shit. I definitely aimed for like good, but I yeah. understood that I might be shit at first about right. it. Um, right. At least acknowledge it. And you don't feel um, disheartened when your efforts don't work, right? Because that, yeah. that's the thing, you trial and error. That, that's the thing, you know, I think we, we, we dodge the cliche is like, failure is good. 
There's many mm. years we said failure is good. It's, it's not good, but like it can <laughs> it's useful. Be good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's not good. It's useful. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not like. But good. don't. Yeah, don't. But uh, but I mean, it's interesting because even then, you say something that I quite I tend to pick up quite a lot when speaking with with clients and and pro bono clients and stuff like that. Is you mentioned about the importance of you know or your perception of the importance of marketing. People say that word time and time again to me, especially in very early stages of startups. Like, I just don't know how to market my product. I don't know how to market. And my my response to that is, well, you shouldn't be marketing your product at all. You should be selling it like, and there's a difference like you know you, you shouldn't be you know because of, again marketing makes you think of ads it makes you think of you know uh, right. uh, you know materials and and, and uh, you know paper paper click and all that sort of stuff like no you don't want to do marketing you don't want to do advertising you want to do sales I mean, people need to know you know you're not just getting in touch with people mm -hmm. to let them know about your products you're getting in touch with people to ask them to buy it like there's a difference like yeah, you know absolutely. and that and that's a lot more proactive and it's a lot more useful marketing is about putting stuff into the ether and seeing what happens sales is about actions it's about going out there and just saying hey tell me what you think about this would you buy it would you want it you know it's a yeah, little bit more I'd, substantial I'd, in my view and add to that though i think marketing is all encompassing like sales and marketing are are joined at the hip like the point oh, yeah 100 but I, i'm talking more just in the earlier stages though one i think it should be more skewed towards sales more so than marketing in my opinion I, I i totally agree you want to sell something whether it's an idea even that's the thing is people get caught up there i don't have anything yet it doesn't matter mm. sell them on the idea you have yes you yeah. if you have the most kick-ass killer idea ever you will get people to pay you money before you have anything right yeah. That, yeah that's the that's the holy grail of startups is i've got a thousand people that have put down money for the thing i've told them i will build mm. and let's go back to our friend elon musk what's he done with all that he the Tesla Model 3 and the Cybertruck, things like this, it, it put down a deposit and he's collected millions and millions and millions of dollars from people for something that doesn't exist yet. Or, or probably, you know, it's, it's in the flight, but like, yeah. because, yeah, yes, he'll obviously he's got the track record and stuff, but that's uh, that's the holy grail to get people to pay for mm -hmm. something that doesn't exist yet. Kickstarter is a good example of that as well. Yeah, yeah I was just thinking that about that. Yeah, that, yeah. That, only certain businesses work in that model, but, but the notion of selling something that doesn't exist is totally fine. It's sell the idea. You can get a bit of a waiting list. You know, if you've got an idea of something and you go, oh, it's going to cost me a million quid to build it, like get 10,000 people putting their email addresses down on some simple landing page that says, I am interested in this. Mm. And then you take those 10,000 and you go to an investor with an idea and go, I've got the interest and I've got the plan. You know, I guarantee you're going to get the money, but you've got a damn slight higher and, and really importantly, I've got the skill set to make it work, which I yeah. think is something that, yeah, which to and your I, point about the experience side yeah. of things is, is, is important. Yeah. Possibly the team as well would be, uh, yeah. would be great in there, but, but like above all interest from users, that's, that's yeah. the best yeah, thing. Yeah. The thing I think about marketing though, I'd say now my, my kind of mental model on it is, is twofold. It's who is the right customer for your product and how mm. are you talking to them? That's kind of mm. what it's still down to in two ways in, in very, very simplistic. You know, there's the channel you reach them as well as important. But like fundamentally, you asked the question before, you know, property developers, investors, these people who are the best users for us. There's something called an ICP as well, an ideal mm. customer persona. Think about that. Who is your ideal customer? And then as you do that exercise, you'll think about how do I, you know, tell them how great what I've got is um, in a way that's that reaches them and talks to them. Because, you know, everyone suffers from information overload where everything mm. You know, this and that. If you've got someone's attention, you've got your ideal customer's attention. You've got about five seconds to capture their interest and get them yeah. to do something that takes things a step further. So you've got to be pretty damn, you know, concise and clear with your messaging, and and, and that value proposition's got to come out very early on. And too many people get they get caught up with like buzzword bullshit where. Mm. I've got this new AI cloud-enabled super, you know, smart app, and and 
people have lost their attention before they've yeah. even got to the crux of what it is they're trying to sell. Um, and, and, and you know, it's funny you mention this because this is exactly what I had a conversation with my co-founder with today about our yeah. offering. We announced coming out of Stealth recently, I think yesterday, in fact, what day is it today? Yeah, yesterday announced yeah. coming out of Stealth and um, got some great feedback from people, which was to be expected on the fact that we're not being very specific with the target market we're going for, which we always knew was probably going to be the feedback and we were always prepared to change that. But it was overwhelmingly useful and, and abundant, the feedback. And to your point, it's, you know, the messaging is unclear about the product. That was the feedback, basically. Yeah. What does it actually do? Who is it for and, and how does it do it? That kind of thing. And it's because we tried to, to make the messaging appeal to as many different people as possible. Yeah. Right. And that, that was somewhat intentional to see the response. We, we kind of knew that that was going to be the case because it's kind of common sense. But it was useful to have that hypothesis, mm. you know, tested and proven right. And now we know, OK, we are going to hone in on this particular ICP and we're going to make the messaging around that. And I literally got off a pro bono call before I jumped onto you where I was giving the exact same advice to someone else, you know, where like they were saying, we're struggling to get a foothold in pay-per-click and we're struggling to, to make an impact with our BDMs and so on. It's like, well, who are they selling to? Everyone. Well, there's your problem. Yeah. You know, because like you said, you know, if they go to a landing page and, you know, from an ad, the ad isn't specific for them. And then the testimonial isn't specific to their industry or from someone that they recognize in their industry or the data and, the, you know, all that and the value proposition isn't all re relevant to their specific industry, even just from a terminology point of view. Like you can have the exact same information, but just slightly different terminology is relevant to that market. Oh, yeah. Suddenly it's relatable and then they can buy into it and they understand it. And there's a certain level of trust there right so oh, okay these people don't just understand what they do they understand my industry specifically so i'm going to work with them not right. the other guy that claims to work with everyone it's like they get me yeah and that's, that's, that's <laughs> the thing that comes to mind for me is it's like if you try and talk to everyone you end up talking to no one yeah right and it's yeah, exactly. not a level you want um and then like a top tip i'd say to people would be if you're not sure about this maybe you've got a startup and you're like because stan was like this as well you it, it can solve multiple, um, serve multiple different types of users, right? And it was built that way. And the product can do that, but the marketing should not be generic. So like the, the tip I would say to people, if you're unsure about this, is actually with the rise of AI tools and the simplicity that you can build websites now, simple landing pages, it's very straightforward to just create, say, three variations of a particular landing page. The same images, modifications, like you say, of slightly different text, tweaking different types of users, and actually hosted on different domains or whatever it might be and actually push out each of them maybe do an ad campaign mm -hmm. with a thousand pounds for for each site with slightly different messaging and just see what clicks yeah, and might testing, find, right? yeah exactly yeah. exactly absolutely but you can do it with whole landing pages now right mm -hmm. which it it's far 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 easier than it was say three four five years ago oh yeah um and you can just spawn these up and try different things and vary and vary them um and yeah, like I say, it's, it's not, you know, throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. Mm. Sitting there just thinking that, yeah, it's all going to work out is not, uh, is not a recipe yeah. for success. Exactly. And we and we tried that somewhat with 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 our uh, approach yesterday and uh, sort of building in the months building up to that of like, um, I suppose over a certain level of see what sticks, but 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 it was in, in to, 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 to some degree more like the landing page thing uh, where it's just like, okay, well, what's going to be the response when I when I come out, when I make this announcement in the little pockets of communities that that, that that serve these different industries, what's going to be the feedback? And very clearly, there was a winner. 
right? Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, this is the one that seems to it seems to resonate more with once they get what it is, right? Which is still an overall problem. But once they get what it is, it resonates more. There's a there's a more visceral reaction there. So it's like, okay, right. So I and that was always the hypothesis, but it's like, okay, it's been proven now. So now, now we know, and we've not gone with yeah. it of any bias because we've gone with one blanket approach for everyone and giving the same thing to everyone. It's like, okay, that one is the one that came up, right? That's what we thought. So now scrap that and let's focus there. You yeah, know? So it's, I mean, it's I, another I, way of I, doing I it. Flag, yeah, no, it absolutely works. So the only, the only challenge you've got there is some, there's a tiny bit of risk of bias, which is depending on what channels you use to actually popularize, to reach those, those users yeah, who need the feedback on there. Because if you all went through, I don't know, for example, if all your promotion was through TikTok, you might expect it to be a slightly younger demographic that have actually reached your landing page that might give you different feedback to people that perhaps if you went through Facebook and yeah, yeah, yeah. there because they're going to be an old demographic, maybe it's more suitable for them. So you do have to think about the persona, the channel yeah. and the messaging all kind of together. Um, but like yeah, my, my, my point was like, if you know your persona and you know the messaging, you can figure out which channels the right ones to reach them. So that's yeah. kind of secondary consideration, but it does, if you're doing it the other way around, then the channel you're using can impact the, the conclusions you reach. So just, just yeah. trying to keep in mind. Yeah, no, and it's and it's a very good point. I mean, yeah, a lot of a lot of it was a realization that, that yeah, we, we've made a lot of uh, a lot of educated guesses. Let's say that were proven wrong in the last sort of forty eight hours, and it's been surprising, but um, but incredibly useful, you know, and a bit of a bit of an yeah. awakening. But um, but yeah, that's that's it's part of the experience, you know. Mm. And uh, but you've got to be open to having all of your preconceptions proven wrong. That's the key. Is, you know, don't don't marry yourself to any idea or or, or, or opinion, and just be come into it with an open mind and be ready to be proven wrong that's the important thing so you know yeah. there's certain elements of the the commercial strategy which i were adamant about as that i'm now going no we're scrapping that and that's that's fine and you've got to be agile in that in that regard you know but there's um i think they're saying that if I, I try and get it right it's uh the ideal startup founders have a set of strongly held loose beliefs Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I can't remember where that quote comes from. I can't um, remember either. It's, yeah, it's a very famous quote. It's yeah. a good one. And, and like, you know, it's kind of translated into some English. It's, you know, you've got to be pretty damn sure of what you're doing, but you, you've got to be pretty damn open to be challenged on that and to yes. change your mind if someone can give you reasons for it or not to. I, I will yeah. say, you know, the whole thing about um, assumptions is also really, really important, um, especially in the early days. Like, you cannot test everything. It's impossible. Yeah you have to go on 90% plus assumptions and go, I think if I do this, then people will like it. Or if I build that, that's what they want. Or if I do this type of marketing, I'll get this response. Like you need to do that. You can, again, stuck in being stuck in analysis paralysis for too long. If you're like, well, before I do anything, I'm gonna create a focus group. We're gonna send out surveys. We're gonna talk yeah. to industry experts. Yeah. You can do certain things this way, but like often it's just better to say, I think this is going to work. I'll try it out. And, and it's the feedback from that that informs your, does it confirm your assumption or does it challenge your assumption? Yeah. And and, and maybe be ready with some alternatives for that. Absolutely. But, but, but yeah, absolutely right. Because if, um, yeah, and, and I think that comes with with a mixture of experience and, and common yeah. sense, right? Yeah. Like, you know, just a bit of experience around UI, for example, going back to that will, will let, lead you to the right 
decisions in, in relation to how you lay out your platform, let's say, but also a bit of common sense will inform that too, um, even if you don't have that experience. So a healthy dose of those two things combined will hopefully you know, put you in the right direction until you can start bringing in that actual data to guide it further. But yeah, there's going to be some educated guesses that you should hopefully be making along the way to get you to, to point A to point B and so on. Yeah, but, uh, like some, some similar things, like what, what color should everything be? It's like, right. take one and go with it. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> but people well, you go, make sure there's a dark red. mode. That bright red. Oh yeah, there's a dark mode. Yeah, yeah. Always yeah. has to be a dark mode. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's bright, bright, bright red. People might say to you, I, you know, it's great what you've built here, but the colors right. are crap. You go, all right, fine, I'll change it. But you know. Yeah, but again, there's a bit of common sense which is like, yeah. But again, there's a bit of common sense there, which is, you know, bright red, probably. Probably of course, of course. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, well, actually, I do think like names is an interesting one. People get really yeah. stuck with names. I see two two sides to it. One where people just go, "Well, name, here you go," and mm. others where I need to do all this sort of investigation things like that. And there's like, you get I think really caught up. There's with new that ones. A long time. There's yeah, there's nuance and everything, right? There's yeah. a gray area of everything. And so like, even what we're saying there about, you know, speeds to delivery and all that, there are exceptions to that. Like, Absolutely. you know, um, there are exceptions to iterating. There are exceptions to this idea of building an MVP at all. Like there are some businesses, there are some clients I'm working with where they, they're in an industry where an MVP would absolutely destroy the brand of their business. They would have to go, they have to go straight yeah. to a V1 and it has to be of a certain quality because they're serving a sector which is, a, you know, of a certain, they, they uh, expect a certain standard and things like that. So there's exceptions to all these rules. And names is another one where, you know, it depends where you're selling into. It depends on what it is that your product, you know, does and is. And there are others where, none of it matters marketing doesn't matter like you know you don't even need to have a fucking website like you know that that you know you don't need to have any presence beyond just communicating sending an email to someone and saying this is what we do and it's because it's such a bespoke enterprise yeah. level so you know what i mean so that there's gray everywhere but you know we're talking about the broad strokes yeah but absolutely. yeah name is the one like generally speaking you could put you could flick through a dictionary and just go that word and flick through the dictionary again, pick that word, combine them, and you've got the name for a business. It yeah. doesn't matter. To be able to as well now, you can probably, you can iterate through that as well. If it takes you more than, if you're spending more than a day on it, you're spending too long, I'd say, probably, especially yeah. these days yeah. with, with, with the tools available. But yeah, the one thing, other, the other thing I'd say on that, just for anyone that's listening, is like, just thinking about this right now, is just make sure you can spell it. Don't pick out like obscurely spelled yeah. words and names and things where there's letters missing or different vowels and things like that because no one will hear it and then they'll go and type it into Google and they just won't find you because yeah. they couldn't. They didn't I work, I work with a, bit, a client, one of my first <laughs> SaaS clients um, as an advisor was, uh, I won't say the name of the company because of, you know I value that relationship and friendship still, um, was a, uh, a name of a business that for the life of me, I could not pronounce, no matter how many right. times I, I, I tried. Right. And I thought maybe it's something wrong with me. So I checked <laughs> with my wife and I checked with friends. And I was like, can any of you pronounce this? And if I asked you to respell it without looking, could you? Do and I was like, okay, no. So I came back and I said, look, I think you need to change the name of your business. And it was a hard no. It's like, this name means something to me. It has, yeah. you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, man, you're never going to be able to market this product. I'm sorry, unless you can Absolutely. unmarry yourself from this word that has meaning to you, it has meaning for no one else other than exactly, you. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you've got to let that go. And she wouldn't let it go. So that's um, that, that yeah. strongly held loose belief. That's where someone has a strong belief. And they go, strongly right. believe this is the right name for the product. And they're, they're, I agree they're doing something wrong there because it's yeah. like, you want to have, you want to, I believe this is the right name, but I'm open that someone's going to say, well, I've spoken to 10 people and none of them can spell it. 
you can have to rethink that otherwise you're right. just kidding yourself right yeah yeah it's like the next it's funny as well we're bringing this up because it feels timely i was literally you know what it's like as a founder you're thinking about everything constantly and picking yeah, it apart yeah. am i doing it right am i doing it wrong whatever second guessing yourself constantly and this idea of the name of of our startup came up observic is what it's called right and some of the feedback um yeah right observic and some of the feedback that we had recently from some people about the product itself in some of the tests in some of the the sort of testing we did just based on the idea of it was mm. there was a concern that it was like spyware right it's not at all it's got nothing to do with that it's very very separate from that but some of the interpretations of some of the the tools we had was it might be that right and i'm like is it anything to do with the name is it is the name actually seeding something because it's got observe in it which is obviously the whole point but it's meant to be perceived as a more positive thing. So maybe is it that combined with the slightly sort of generic messaging that is creating this joint sort of perfect storm of a misinterpretation of what the platform does? Mm -hmm. So then it got me along the lines of, do we need to rethink about the name? Do we need to? But then it's been the name for so long. Like, and I'm just thinking, does it really matter? Actually, I quite like the name. Like, and then and I keep swimming and throwing with it, and I'm not, I'm not sure how important <laughs> it is. But um, um, I would say. Um... It probably doesn't matter at this stage. I mm. think if you think about changing the name, you're you're probably spending an inordinate amount of time doing it for what would be a small amount of value. You know, to, to be honest, the, the the length of time I just talked about it is longer than the amount of time I thought about it. Yeah, fine, exactly. <laughs> but it will be in the back of your mind for a while. But it's there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's probably not. If, you know, it's, it's kind of a that's a funnel optimization type thing, where it's yeah, like you yeah. know what, two percent of our users get a bad connotations about the name and mess like. Let's maybe think about rebrand. But you know, if you've got less than 110 customers, it's probably the wrong time to think about it. Exactly. Yeah. Just plow on, yeah. just keep going for and now. And it's the first time it ever came up, to be honest. And it was only a few people. But it's you know what it's like. Sometimes it all it can take is a few things. And you're like, wait a minute, is there a correlation there between this and this? Yeah. And you start making connections that just don't fucking exist. And like, you know, it's one that just came into my head. But uh, yeah. but anyway, <laughs> it's an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, but Landworth. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. I like names that just explain the thing as well, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. It tells you how much your land's worth. Um, yeah. We do stuff from there, but, you know, that's um, absolutely. That was a, a, an early um, decision, actually. Um, I was playing with land value as well as the land value, like a lot of our backends. Mm. Also, it has that like, labels there, but, like, yeah, it was like, well, how much is land worth? Um, What's your house worth? You know, yeah. you can you know, the whole uh, um, chain of businesses. You know, at some point, the uh, empire, the, the worth empire, you know, could be uh, art worth, for example, or moon worth, or Mars worth, right. perhaps when we get to Mars. You know, you want to like how much your your dome on the Mars <laughs> worth? Oh yeah, yeah. We, have a, we have an app for that. Um, <laughs> you imagine, you know, just something that helps you uh, figure out what things are actually worth. It's, it's an yeah, I mean, I look forward to a future where we're talking about the 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 the, the value of land on a different planet. Like that is a future I'm hoping to live to start seeing. That would be so cool. I don't know oh, about you, but I, I, I yes, something of an aspiring futurist, and uh, in that regard, like I would very much to live in a in a future where we're we're living on another planet at some point. Or beginning to at least visiting them yeah i'm still not like um living on mars is still a little bit of uh commitment there but yeah but maybe living happen. living on the moon that 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 would be a nice starting point to see in my life and then visiting mars maybe but um, perhaps yeah um yeah like, uh, hopefully 
sooner rather than later, I suppose. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be very happy to work with Elon on Mars work. Would you have a holiday home on a different planet? Because <laughs> you know that's going to be the first thing, right? For the general public, it's going to be who's going to yeah, who's the richest enough to buy a holiday home on the moon? Yeah, that's. Um, I imagine it'd be Airbnb at some point. You know, you, you put a timeshare <laughs> type thing, and I can go there for one month in a year or yeah, something like that. Yeah, um, it's going to be interesting how the economies work on these other planets when we can't get there that easily. Mm. Well, yet, yet we'll see. But uh, but let me uh, let me um, ask you about you a bit more because because um, obviously we focus a lot on Landworth and and you know story to get in there but like tell me about you on a more personal level so you know family like things like that you know, where whereabouts in the UK are you again so I'm in Northwest London um, so NW11 uh, near to Hampstead Heath nice views of, of London stuff um, yeah, yeah. yeah my family here um, everyone is in. Northwest London, pretty much. Um, right. So grew up here. I said, born and raised in London. Went to school here um, before I flew the nest for for university. Um, and do you have a family of your own? No, not yet. Um, yeah. No, much. My mum's Ira. Um, I guess uh, Lambeth <laughs> is my baby at the time for the, the moment. Um, you it's know. funny. You're the second founder to tell me that today <laughs> when talking about ch the children. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it takes probably similar amounts of time and effort and energy, um, you know, mm. blood, sweat, and tears that go into raising a child. It's like growing a startup. Um, but um, no, I mean, but I'm I'm pushing on forty next year actually. So it's not mm. it's not not in my mind. Um, and uh, I'd hope the next um, few years I will have a biological baby as well as a technical baby. <laughs> um, you know, it's. Um, yeah, I do like kids. So um, it's funny people make the comparison um, quite a lot between you know parenthood and 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 entrepreneurialism, foundership, whatever you want to call it. And like mm. there are a lot of comparisons, but I suppose one of the the key differences for me is um, the the level of um, the I suppose the reward aspect of it is is a little different. Like th there is obviously an enormous amount of reward in uh, running a business and the success of that, but. Um, and you know the, the small successes that come about you know and things like that but they're, they're, i don't know there's something very different about the feeling that it that it emotes in the same way that failure also is slightly different too so the journey is the same but your feelings about them are very different if that makes mm. sense like so that failures in business you know in entrepreneurship can be incredibly soul dest destroying of course they can you know put you in very dark places just as how the highs can put you in incredibly high places but for mm. some reason there's something about parenthood that when you go through the same journey you're way harder on yourself at the lows and and even to some degree you know maybe not as so gentle on yourself even in the highs because you, you're happy but you don't really attribute that to your own input as much mm. I don't know. It's odd, but the, the emotion is just far more amplified, I think. Um, and I don't know if that's biological, perhaps, like that, that, that something's there triggered. Because you, you certainly, at least I've noticed, I've got a lot more emotional since becoming a father. Like, you know, uh, you know I, I, I get brought closer to tears, like looking at an advert like now, like <laughs> and stuff like I'm a lot more sensitive like about things in general than I used to be. Right, <laughs> Maybe it's yeah. just age as well. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, not having kids in my head, it's, it's hard to, to escape. But I think I think it's the major differences. I think the fact that at least with the startup, you can switch off if you need to. You can take right. a two week holiday. Um, yeah. 
good luck taking a two-week holiday from your wife your partner and kids you know mm. without yeah. paying for it significantly somewhere else <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> maybe a couple but, a long weekend you might be lucky you know but but having said that that's that's actually probably not a bad thing to do like it might sound a bit heartless but actually it's probably a good thing to I'm do sure. is take a bit of a break from your partner and have a bit of a break from your kids and you know do all this kind of, every now and then maybe not maybe not for two weeks but like you know yeah a long weekend uh, with the lads i'm sure yeah uh, exactly good for exactly. mental health um yeah. absolutely as long as you have, you have a, a, an accommodating partner that understands that as well and that you would do the same that she wants a girls weekend and and you look after the, the, the little yeah, yeah um yeah in terms of reward you know the reward function of having a kid versus a startup uh, i think there are a little different um yeah, I think from from what I hear, you know, at least the first several months, maybe a couple of years are a shit show, um, both metaphorically and probably <laughs> literally in some cases, you know, tsunamis <laughs> yeah. and things. And so um, you've got you to clean up a lot of crap. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, after at some point the child becomes like a little person and then you start to get stuff back from them. You get like that, you know, real feedback and they, they, they talk to you and you're like, wow, I created this thing, right? So I think there's there is that kind of inevitable reward function with with kids. Startups are a little different um, because, I mean, as you know, well, no, most startups fail. Um, mm -hmm. You hear about the success stories, you don't really hear much about the failures. But what's gone on in those? You know, you think about those failures. What's really happening there? I think in a lot of cases, it's it's like people haven't reached the reward function yet and actually got mm -hmm. something back from the time and effort and energy and money that they put into something mm -hmm. um, that makes them feel like it's worth carrying on. Um, yeah. And so. You know, if you, you know, like the best feeling I get still now is a new customer, a new subscriber, mm -hmm. something, you know, yesterday, um, it was a day off for me. It was nice, you know, but like I had an email at some point in the early evening. It says, uh, we've got a new customer. It's just created a new subscription. I'm like, it's great. It's a really good feeling. You know, like mm -hmm. there's the fruits of your labor. You're getting that yeah. from, from the effort you put in. And, and I've, I've, I'm actually not working. I'm, I'm sitting down at home, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm relaxing it. And this is, and that's come from Val. Um, but I will say it took a long time and a lot of effort to get to the point where that starts to happen. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of things had to go eventually go right, um, mostly through iteration to reach the point where that's happening. And what, what year did you did you um, first put together uh, Landworth? So the uh, so I believe that the company company's house was actually registered in 2018. Um, was when right. I first started it. Reason being, then was at that point, um, I wasn't. It, it wasn't a launching a product, a platform. It was I was doing consultancy work actually with property companies um, because a lot of property companies don't know much about technology. So yeah. I saw opportunity to do some sort of um, side hustling, if you will, with property companies, um, and earn a few extra quid. Um, Reuters as well was undergoing a big transition at that time where we started to um, briefly. Um, Thomson Reuters sold the financial division to Blackstone, um, and then about a year later, they sold that new company called Refinitiv to London Stock Exchange, and so that company is now the data and analytics division of London Stock Exchange. And so there's a lot of a lot of stuff happens through those sorts of changes, uh, a lot of redundancies. Um, so I was just kind of like, let's see, you know, keep my uh, keep my options open and things. And so um, I did some consulting work, property companies around that, and I was funneling money into the business. That was actually became our bootstrapping kind of funds. Um, was based on the consultancy work I did um, that helped us to then put the technology in place to launch something. Um, and like I said, the beta was was launched sometime after that. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head exactly the date of it. Um, and the paid version of Landworth was launched at the beginning of 2021. Um, 
two and a half years ago. Um, that's when we launched the first paid version, um, which was coincidental when I left um, the corporate world and um, uh, and got going with it properly. Um, yeah, so, these yeah. things take time, man. You know, they take time. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and especially when you're trying to make ends meet um and and bootstrap and you know keep a roof over your head and this is the thing that a lot of people forget about you know it's like it's, you know you've got to you've got to stretch that timeline out if when you're doing that as well you know and, and i speak to a lot of um founders who you know have families and they've got response you know other responsibilities beyond just you know looking after themselves and that's a that's a whole other kettle of fish too like you know it's very difficult you've just got to you know lower your expectations somewhat to a degree but but also be even more bloody minded that you're you're going to make it work it's just you know going to be on maybe a slightly more stretched out timeline than you imagined or you know what can you do to carve out that time what can you do to pay for it what can you do to free up capital like there's you know there's no one size fits all there right no no not at all i mean um i i remember actually in in the earlier days you know um before before i left the corporate world i was must have been messing around with the beta and i was just you know giving people things like that and i thought to mm -hmm. myself Coming from a product and technical perspective, I was like, "Ah, oh, this is this is nearly done. This you know, be a millionaire any day now, right?" Kind of, right. You know, naive thought process. And I remember <laughs> was an event. It was one of these um, kind of um, Dragon's Den style startup pitching events. Mm. I went to some of these um, in the early days. One, I think it was actually at Google's offices in uh, in London. Um, and um, I spoke to someone there who was another startup founder. He said to me, "Go, you know, we were just talking about his business and minuses." He said to me, it takes five to 10 years to have an overnight success. Mm. And I didn't know what he meant at the time. And I thought to myself, no, but, but surely I'm, I'm close. I'm going to be doing a year or two. I'm pretty close to making my money from this. Mm. Um, how little did I know? Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it really does take time. Just even if you've got the product right, um, the marketing and all the other stuff, there's a hell of a lot in, in, involved in that. It's like the other half of it. Yeah. Um, and here we are five years later, actually, you know, now make money and, and turning profit and things um and that's a long time to plan for and so when you when you hear you know founders say oh well you know we need funding otherwise we'll be closed in six months it's like dude that's not that's not going to work you know you yeah. need to find a way to to figure that out to stretch it out for the next six years not six months basically. yeah i mean i typically <laughs> advise someone to go for like a try to aim at least for an 18 month road uh, uh, mm. uh, runway so like 18 month runway like depending on your burn rate and if you haven't got enough money for that reduce your burn rate mm. um because if you're yeah, if you're fundraising every six months, some people will do this. They'll actually every six months they need more money. That they're, they're doing something wrong there because it take, can take six months. You will literally mm. be stuck in a perpetual fundraising cycle. Mm. Um, if you are a sole founder or, or, or two founders, that's far too much time. Perhaps if you have four or five founders on there, one person dedicated to fundraising, you might be able to pull it off. But I still think mm. you're probably doing something wrong there. Yeah, because it's an um, enormous time sinks fundraising. It's, it takes an enormous amount. Of time. And if you've got five people in there that you can even dedicate one person to it, I hate to think what your burn rate's going to be. Um, right. <laughs> so, yeah, um, exactly. It's a catch twenty-two there. So, so right. did you um, fundraise for 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 Landworth then? We have not yet fundraised. No. Okay. Um, as I said, so the initial sort of startup capital came from consultancy work. Um, that I did make right. the property companies to just inject enough capital in there. You know, we, we, um, my co-founder is also technical. So mm. we actually did computer science together back in, in Leeds. Um, right. so we have this benefit of being able to develop, um, in a house and that's a big, big, big expense for yeah. businesses. They will spend hundreds of thousands. You know, I, 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 it would cost many, many, many hundreds of thousands to recreate what we've built. Um, and so, you know, it's 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 well, it's time, it's sweat and time, you know, that gone into mm -hmm. it as opposed to capital um, that we would have to pay otherwise. But it, it that does give us that really nice benefit that 
we get iterate very fast. Um, yeah. The product is constantly evolving. Um, things that you won't, will see things you won't see, right? Um, and many other companies stuck that, you know, they, they, they hire, they outsource and things like that. And, and they paying people constantly on the books for maintaining the software. Um, that gives us a, a bit of an unfair advantage, you know, back to, <laughs> so before that's an unfair advantage, we can code, um, we can develop, um, we have product design mentalities. And so the product gets fed in that direction. Um, it's uh, interesting because typically when looking at sort of the history of Silicon Valley uh, as, as the prime example of sort of what spawned a lot of, you know, what what we see now is kind of the template for yeah. this, this, the, the, the software startup ecosystem, if you will. But typically, you know, out, out of that, at least originally, you know, the vast majority, if not all of the founders were from a technical background, they were developers that were, you know, and, and they would be going through incubators and, and accelerators and so on to, to, to supplement their, their skill set in the more commercial side of things. That yeah. was generally how it was. And now you're seeing it, you know, sort of flipped almost, I would say, arguably more in favor for, uh, of non-technical founders. Um, coming up with ideas and wanting to build them and looking for investment to build these ideas and and uh, and struggling more with the technical side and and it's interesting because it, there, i mean there's a pretty good split there's still plenty of technical founders that i come across too but but generally speaking they're the ones that seem to have the the, the most struggles because there's there's a huge learning curve there because not only you know could if even if they do raise the money for invest to invest into building the platform they've still got to become somewhat familiar with the the, the world of development with the you know the, the ability to communicate with a development team you know not just because of the language potential language barriers but but just because there it's a very different language to speak you know sometimes literally you know <laughs> um, depending on what the platform's built on so there's there's a huge amount of challenges there and how to project manage that and how to do it it's, you know incredibly complex and then on top of that if they also don't have any background in the sort of commercial side of things that adds another layer of it but mm -hmm. um you know, it's uh, it's interesting how that's that's changed over the years. Like, do do you think that 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 there's a? I mean, obviously, there's an advantage to you being able to do it, like you just pointed out. But but do you feel like that that the individuals who aren't technical who want to go and build a, a, a software as a platform um, have a, an advantage, a, a sort of unknown advantage there to being sort of somewhat ignorant to it? That like there might be ignorance being blissful in that regard, or do you see it just purely as like a, 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 a hindrance potentially what's what's your view on it basically? Uh, there's such thing as a simple answer isn't it um no. it's, that's not clear cut so I, and it's never a simple question with no me, no of course that's <laughs> great um i mean i'll tell you you know an anecdote which would be like in the early days you know i can go back three odd years four years friends would say to me why are you building this yourself why don't you just outsource it you know take it to india they'll build this for you really quickly and, and, and cheap and i was like firstly it won't be quick or cheap um but like there are certain things you wouldn't outsource and certain things you should not outsource um and, and stuff like landworth in my view yes aspects can be and, and we do outsource certain aspects of, of um the development work especially like around the ui and things but there's some things which you just couldn't outsource because firstly i don't quite know what the thing i need to be built is it's like the act of actually building it tells you what you're trying to build mm. so you're kind of doing design ux product management coding QA kind of all in one. Which it's very exploratory and you doing right. it kind of thing, right? It enables you to move quite fast, right? And, and the weakness of outsourced development teams, wherever in the world they're based, really is usually, if you don't have a really clear spec on what you want, they're not gonna give you what you want, right? It, mm -hmm. This is a tale as old as time, which is I paid some company 300 grand to build the MVP and then they built it and they charged me 300 grand, but it wasn't what I wanted. Mm. They've screwed up and I'd say, no, you've screwed up. 
No, 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 no. I told them exactly what I wanted. Well, they didn't understand it clearly. Well, you weren't explicit enough about what you wanted. There's too many medium level requirements and not enough ground level requirements. And like that's and he, what takes and you probably time. didn't know what you wanted in exactly, exactly. Yeah. You, I want I want something that solves this problem. And what you've done is you've outsourced the business analysis and the product management mm -hmm. to an outsourced development shop who were just building, they're just doing paint by numbers, but you haven't built the architecture, the, like the data architecture, the product architecture mm -hmm. properly, so that they're they're just they're interpreting what you're saying and they're giving you something that, that isn't what you have in mind. Um, mm. It means you weren't clear enough in the first place. So this is a very common problem, um, which yeah. can be overcome by either doing the work yourself or at least doing the hard stuff yourself or, or having really, really good product managers um, mm. that will, and, and product owners and often VAs as well, uh, business analysts. And that or, or work with a technical uh, consultant to some degree, at least. I mean, that would be money well spent. You know, I, I've just teamed up with, uh, with a, a technical advisor and, and fractional CTO. For some of the stuff that i'm doing and like yeah. that's worth its weight in gold for individuals like that who, who don't know because they can have guidance on that on that project management review stuff before it's sent across this is how it's going to be interpreted yeah. this is what you need to drill down on and it's yeah. like that can save you potentially you know tens if not hundreds of thousands of, of pain yeah. you know pounds later on down the road and these sort of things i think that's 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 an important thing to do yeah i totally agree actually so like because yeah exactly as i said there's a blend of different between ba product manager, um, product owner, CTO, technical architect, you need to be, so like having consultancy companies, probably a very effective way to do that because mm. you can tap into a broad set of skills um, without needing to pay someone a 40 hour week. You know, you just right. bits and pieces of that and that helps you to determine your, your MVP specification. Um, but coming to your question though, right? You know, I think it's interesting. Um, and I think it's changing quite rapidly quite recently. Um, mm. So I think in the past, yeah, you, if you don't have a technical, if you're building a technical company, you're simply for making handbags, um, but if you're building something technical, you want someone with a technical background on your founding board. Um, and many accelerators and investors would look badly upon you if you don't, right? Because you just to say, well, I'm going to build this. I've got a great, I've had this pain point for years. I don't know anything about technology, but I think it can be built. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get AI to solve this problem for me. Right, how you can do that? We're going to outsource to this development team that I know, and they're going to build it all. Um, there's a gap there of, of really internal technical ownership. Mm. So it is important to have a on your family board. But obviously, the things that are changing recently is AI is making it easier than ever for someone to build stuff with no technical understanding and expertise. Um, and there, you know, the, the the proliferation of low code or no code tools is. Mm is just accelerating really um so yeah. i do think um what you will find probably i mean they already exist there are, uh there's a couple of these sort of open source repo uh, repositories which give you access to tools that will you say i want an application i want an app uh, an iphone app that does abc mm -hmm. and you start that off and it comes back to you with clarification questions uh, for example a game it will say i want a snake game and it goes okay what are the rules you know, what are the controls? Mm. And it will prompt you for questions. And once you answer those questions, it might give you more and more questions until it goes, okay, I know everything I need to know now. Thank you for answering your questions. And it starts writing the code and it will create several different files which build a game for you, right? For example, we're an mm. application. This this already exists today. Um, you know, I can, I can tell you a few different repos with this stuff, but like that's only going to get better. And that's mm. going to be, I'd say 12 months from now, it won't be difficult for you to, to talk to an AI and it will create some... I'm not sure MVP is the right word, but like 
a demo application for something that you are conceiving of. And like so a I prototype. Think, type. Yeah, exactly. A prototype. Yeah. Absolutely. Something you can kind of point and click at and maybe install on your phone. Maybe it doesn't do everything it's supposed to do, but maybe it does just enough that you can then you know go back to someone and say, look, look, this is what I've got to build. This is the prototype. And people are already getting good feedback on this. And mm. that will help you to raise the money to go and get a real development team or get a, co a technical co-founder on board, pay the money to to actually come on board full time. Um, do you, do so, you ever think it will get to the point where it will just build the thing? Like, it, you know, it can. It kind of can do that already. Presumably, so. presumably, it can. It will get there. I mean, that's kind of inevitable, right? That that one day you'd be able to go into one of these platforms and say, "These are the parameters for something like Landworth." Build it, and yeah. it comes back to you and then says, "Thanks. Here's your bill for ten thousand dollars," and then you can buy it and it's yours, and then it's there. Like, you know. I mean, you probably have to answer a hell of a lot of questions, but in theory, it could be doable, right? A friendly reminder to share this episode with your network, subscribe for more and join the conversation in the comments. It really helps us out. Thank you. I would say yes, eventually. Um, the question is always going to be around what kind of time horizon, you know? So I think mm. 12 months from now, you're not going to have land worth replicated as such. Um, mm. The, the difficulty in Lamworth, I mean, you know, I could sit here and say, no, no one's ever going to be able to build an AI that can replicate Lamworth. I'd probably be, uh, you know, be flipping a bit there. Um, it's difficult because it's not just about the front end. It's not just the application. Really, the, the, the hard part of Lamworth, the thing that would take you a lot of many, many, many hours to recreate would be um, the the, bat, the processing stuff, like the, yeah. the training of data once a month that comes out. We throw the new data sets at it and it goes, and it churns out 24 hours later. Here's... The latest um, file that we then put into the databases that powers the rest of the platform. So, like, mm. that's pretty complex. Also, the whole back end, all of the kind of syndicated searching it's doing, all the real time aspect and the analysis, that's not easy to recreate either. The front end side of it, though, pretty easy. And I'm already, we're using AI to help us enhance aspects of the front end to really accelerate our development. Yeah. So, like, mm. a user management page and things like that, like settings and things like that. It's such this stuff, mm. a lot of problems have been fixed already or, or these problems have been solved for in other places so ai is good at saying here is a a page that does this it's up that's, that's very prescriptive um yeah but, but um, so, so presumably i suppose to, to get to a point like that what you would need is a is a is a, a piece of kit an ai that had access to the back end of many different types of software so it could understand what what it is you were you wanted based on the information you gave it could look at that train be trained on that um, and then be able to replicate it and of course that isn't the way that software is currently structured at least not now right. but i suppose a, 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 a piece of AI could get to that point if it was initially trained on something like creating snake well then that same ai model years down the line when it's been asked to do more and more demanding things presumably it will have enough data to be able to draw from to create more and increasingly complex uh in increasingly complex projects right so yeah you know like uh, it, it comes to this kind of question the fundamentals of gpt it's like is it capable of real creative thought um mm. or is it limited by what it's seen in the past because if it's limited by what it's seen in the past and you ask it to do something truly innovative it's going to struggle, right? So yeah. if, if the logic of Landworth is completely new and innovative, revolutionary, the back end stuff and the algorithms, I think it would always struggle to do that if that, that holds true. Um, but right. then the flip side of it is, well, once it's seen enough back ends, 
bit. If they've seen enough code and backends of similar things, can it deduce the similarities of it and go, well, I need this to, to I need this backend that does this. And it goes, well, I need a bit of that, a bit of this to this. And it kind of cooks them together in a way. Mm. Um, I do think that's going to become possible. And there's going to become more and more ways to go about this. Um, but then if it has that element of creativity to some degree, then it could, it could deduce those problems without that data set. Um, it could solve the problem creatively, potentially. It said, I wanted to do this. I don't know how. Let me figure it out and come back to you. Then it, that's that's all different. But that's when we get onto a very different realm of of AI. That's a whole different um, ballgame, yeah. isn't it? Well, that's kind of, you know, is that That'd artificial be the least intelligence? <laughs> is that artificial super intelligence? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think what will happen is you'll end up with both. I think you'll end up with the AI will create solutions for problems that we didn't realize we really had or needed to be solved. And that will be one aspect. And the other will be, um where it will be able to do things and similar sort of st stitch things together right i think the thing with with, with gpt actually and i'll just kind of, kind of just tying back to with landware you know yes we do use ai technology and stuff like that but it's not the type of valuation tool where you say here's a property address how much does it worth and it slips down a number that's not mm. quite how it works we, we have it like an, it's a bit too cliche but it's kind of an ai co-pilot like the ai helps you to get to your valuation at the end it helps right. you get to a number that you have data that supports it, the comparable evidence for it. Um, it does 95% of the heavy lifting, I'd say that, but there's still the 5% of human kind of interaction there steering the tool and controlling it to get where you want it to be. And it's highly transparent. It's not a black box like, um, mm. like most of the systems are. Um, I think the, you know, to our conversation about what building apps and things like that, it, it, it's, it's going to go in that direction where the AI is going to help you to build the app. It isn't necessarily going to do everything for you. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, you can pull this up if you want, but there, there is, it's GPT engineer. This is this is the the best one I've seen so far, um, where it's it's they they could specify what you wanted to build. The AI asks for clarification and then builds it. And this can build simple games and applications and things like that. Um, I think there's a there's even a movie somewhere on it. But yeah, th this is this is one of the sort of the leading ones. Um, at the moment um it's pretty cool you can see the bottom there's a little movie where they say make a snake game yeah so that's where i got oh that. yeah <laughs> and it um that is, it's viewable for users here but i'm sure people that will be interested they can check this out and this is awesome for clarification stuff like that you know so it's 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 gonna be it's like you have um a you know a consultant a engineering team um and an architect sitting next to you around you and you go i want a game i want an app for this and they go mm. okay what kind of game do you want and they ask you the questions and then they go okay hold on a second and they produce here you go what do you think of this one and you test it out yeah no it's good but i don't like the color of this the size of that change the mm. thing and then it'll iterate through it so yeah you know, that, that so, kind of ai co-pilot for building apps i think is where we're going to head up head towards with this rather than it just sort of uh you know it, it is going to make a lot of stuff a lot easier i will say yeah. that and it's going to for people like me and you who who are you know founders who have some technical understanding expertise that can 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 do these things it's it's going to level the playing field a lot yeah know? yeah i mean because it, it's interesting because like like what we said right at the beginning about how chat gpt you know changed its ui to be um to be more consumer friendly so that you know general individuals could use it and, and without having to have a, a degree in in large language models you know yeah. i think that there's still very clearly an area of ai as it relates to engineering development work that is to my dog just made a funny noise, which um, which still really uh, can, for the most part, only seem to be, at least in my opinion, uh, from what I can tell as an outsider, be 
really used by people who understand it, right? That, that it's not like there's there's a there's a platform like ChatGPT or Midjourney, which where the user interface is is friendly enough for a layman to go across and say, help me build this thing. It is still very much a tool to facilitate the jobs of software developers for software developers yeah. and so on. At least like even just looking at this, you know, on GitHub, like you know, the average person doesn't know what GitHub is. The average person doesn't know how to get something from <laughs> GitHub and install it and you know to make it work and run it run it in Python and all that sort of stuff. So there's still a, a barrier there. But but I you know I can definitely see like you said in the next 12 months that could change in the same way that you know, Midjourney and, and ChatGPT has, has helped um, uh, content creators, you know, for example, you know, facilitate their work and, and accelerate it forward. This could, yeah, along with a whole other suite of tools, be there for any founder who doesn't have any particular level of, you know, huge level of experience in this to be able to get a foot in the door. And that's a really, that's a positive thing, I believe. I don't know. Yeah. I know people have different opinions on whether or not it's a positive thing or, or not for the industry, but I think it's, if it helps people get, moving forward that, that that's only a positive in my view yeah i mean i mean, thinking back to what we said before as well about this sort of stuff it's um the ux we have chat gpt3 great right yeah we can agree that it's very powerful um very short learning curve actually mm. become pro proficient in using it but to become an expert again as we talk about lamworth like where these shiny buttons are and things um yeah. You can be an expert in ChatGPT. You actually have a, an edge over everyone else. So, for example, custom instructions uh, were released a little while ago uh, with, with ChatGPT. Originally, mm -hmm. initially, initially for the premium users or the uh, ChatGPT Plus users, now for everybody. And custom instructions allow you to customize the way that it behaves. Mm -hmm. Right now, those people can use it without this. It doesn't matter. Um, if you know how to use custom instructions, though, you can kind of get it to do some other more sophisticated things. Um, mm -hmm. It's quite powerful things. The same goes for plugins and the code interpreter plugins they have now as well. Um, mm. Code interpreter is like a little sort of junior data scientist that sits alongside you and you can throw CSV files at it and it will just find patterns in the data. Mm. Um, this is, you know, you would ask a junior data scientist to do this kind of stuff. And mm. uh, now it can do it to probably better than, than a lot of some, some things are better than I can do in some ways. And it great graphs and charts and all sorts of things. Mm. Um, very easy to use simplistically, but to be advanced to really get maximum value out of it, you do need to know what you're doing. It's it like a content engineer, it's a quietly highly paid job now. Um, yeah, so I think yeah. you're going to find with AI that's going to be to do basic things. I just want something that looks shiny and that kind of works. It'll mm. do that for you if you just if you don't know what you're doing or if you, you don't if you're not an expert. Mm. Um, but pro pro proficient users and advanced users will be able to squeeze out way more value out of it because they know mm. how to talk to it in the right way. And this is the thing. I, 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 while while I think it's definitely a good thing that we're going to have more accessibility to these kinds of things, and you know, speed up processes and this that, and the other, we're certainly going to end up with a situation um, where we have a lot of shit out there, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. A lot, and we're already seeing that. Like you know, for, especially when it comes to content, we're already seeing it with you know, email, with with outreach and sales, and in marketing and in advertising, we're already starting to see uh, an enormous amount of of homogenized rubbish that's very clearly, you know, being perpetrated by AI put out into the world. You know, a great example of that was there was a lot of complaints around uh, one of the Marvel series that came out recently. Uh, what was it called? Secret Invasion. Uh, Secret Invasion that, mm. that's beginning credits um, used AI. Mm. And a lot of people obviously kicked off more about the fact that, you know, you've robbed artists from being able to see the work. I was more thinking, yeah, okay, that's a bit of a shame, right? But from a business perspective, they've saved some money like it makes sense and you've got the same it was more just the fact that it didn't it looked like ai that was actually the problem it was more of a creative decision that i was like that's 
that's boring. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if you had actually paid an artist to do it, it would have been more exciting. It would have been more, probably more interesting. It would have had personality. And this is the risk that you have when something is is looking at everything and, and bringing it all together. It's generalized. And so everything's going to start looking the same or not be that great. And especially if you have software that's being developed potentially in this way, you're going to get a lot of ideas because it's faster to get ideas out. that are going to be shit. Yeah, suddenly that, yeah, yeah, and lose that specification. There's something right. so special about this thing. I still think that that will exist. I mean, that's that's where humans will, will play the part in the future. Is we oh, yeah. take the generic and we make it specific and and sexy. And then you um, have the survival of the fittest that kicks in, and and the whole ecosystem <laughs> balances itself out. Yeah, right? you know, yeah. I mean, that's that's the way it works. I mean, it's just like looking at the 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 the, the investment uh, or funding issues that we see around us right now you know how how uh, you know really the barrier for or, you know the entry requirements to, to gaining investment now have really tightened up and a lot of people are, are struggling to, to secure investment you know as a whole I, I i've been on record as saying that i think this isn't necessarily a bad thing um it might feel quite painful to, for the founders trying to get the funding but actually what it's doing is it's raising the bar it's saying you shouldn't be coming to us and asking for money unless, like you pointed out earlier, you can prove you've got traction or interest, that you've got those 10,000 people interested, which previously angel investors, you know, pre-seed and seed stages, weren't too, um, too concerned about. Like, they would overlook that a lot. But now the purse strings have been tightened, and that's the view. It's probably going to go back to the way it was before, unfortunately. But for right now, it's probably not a bad thing. No, I mean, this is it's, it's just... It's capitalist cycles here we're going to hit into recession yep. um it's inevitable you know how bad or how deep it will be is to remains to be seen but like these you know the vc investment dries up in these cycles except unless you're building an ai startup right now then right. you probably be all right you might be all right, okay but like which is AI, ironic considering what we yeah. just said <laughs> yeah no absolutely but it's the only yeah. mark so you know if you kind of oh, i've got this new cryptocurrency idea I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Any that's, you can that's very 2020 cool. yeah exactly um <laughs> But like, yeah, it it, it it clears the decks. I think that's yeah. it's okay. I I think it, it what it does now. What will happen now is is companies where the fundamentals are wrong won't survive. Mm. You know where they are, where their uh, their revenue is below their their burn rate. So mm. you know, and we're we're losing fifty thousand pounds a month. Yeah, and we've got five hundred grand in the bank. So we've got ten months ahead of us. Then you might not survive. Right, yeah. is the reality, in, and that—that's what happens. These, when when you've got, if your fundamentals of your business aren't there yet, if your money coming in is not higher than the money going out, then you can end up with a problem. Uh, and historically, yeah, you could just keep raising money to to help kick the can down the road. We're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. We're gonna yeah. get there. And you convince people that they're gonna get there. Now, now you either get there or you might not uh, make it to the next step. Um, and so. You know, and that's a and that's a business 101 fundamental i remember learning that when i studied business i remember my dad telling me that when i asked him obvious, how right? he is running his business your money should make more money than it your business should make more money than it spends and it's like it seems right. like a very obvious thing that seems to be forgotten about but look you know well, when you VC start playing dilutes it down because vc right. allows you to borrow money from the future and say well we'll pay this back it's okay we're gonna yeah. we're gonna burn money either in development or in marketing or in salaries or whatever it is because we're going to make this money in the future but yeah if, if that was based on bad assumptions which it often will be mm. that and that hasn't come to pass yet then you haven't won the customers you thought you haven't retained those then you will end up unstuck you know it it, yeah. it makes me quite optimistic about now future is because our money you know business fundamentals are good we haven't borrowed money and the money coming in is more than money going out so yeah. i'm not worried about the recession if anything it's going to help us because some other companies that might provide similar-esque services might not survive and mm. then 
you know, they can come to us. We'll, we'll still be around. So we're not yeah. going anywhere. We have no yeah. time limit. Um, That's why the operational foundations and, and economic foundations of a business are so important. You should be, you know, to be able to weather any kind of storm that's coming up. But yeah, and the thing is, yeah, and you and you try and question any of these things about the way that the system is structured, and and you're just simply oh, yeah. usually told like, oh well, you know, it's complicated economic stuff. You wouldn't understand. It's like. Well, no, it seems to be like common sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, the fundamentals are basic. You know, as I say, like, too many people I see will gauge a startup success on how much money you've raised, mm -hmm. how many staff you have. Yeah. Right. Or how many users you have, it, 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 which can work in a B2C environment when you have another monetization. But, but broadly, money you've raised is an, if you've raised a million quid, that's an indication you've convinced someone that you might make money. Yeah. Not success. Hiring staff is also not a, an indication of success. That's just like, well, I have the liquidity available to hire staff. Mm. It, it, it can relate to it, but you can often have a whole load of staff. Um, and what that just means is I've got lots of expenses and I don't actually have the money coming in yet. Mm. Um, these are not measures of success. The measure of success is people paying you money, right? That's, yeah. that's the only true profit. One. Yeah. More, more specifically, profit. What, what was the profit at the end of last year? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, that's the metric. Is it positive? So you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. And it's like, I, I, you know, I remember learning that in fucking school. Like, wh when did we forget that that was a really, you know, important metric? It's like, I, I literally remember my dad showing me when I was a kid. Um, you know, like we, we were talking about. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it came up for whatever reason. It's like generally, if you're going to sell something, you want it to be. Like, I think at the time he said, and I don't know if this still holds true. This was like in commerce at the time. You know, you want to sell it for five times the amount it costs you to buy it, right? Because if there's one that you need to give back for the amount you pay for it, another for the amount of pick and pack it, another for the amount of the, and then two for you, right? And that was like the rule that he, he explained to me. Like this is when I was like nine. It's a good rule of thumb. I think this, it's more complex than that now. Oh, yeah, it is. But he was explaining to me as yeah, a kid. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's simple. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. But you because you have cost based pricing, you have value based. Pricing. Of course, of course. Um, yeah. But he was just saying know. like, if I buy this thing yeah. from them and I sell it to them, then it, uh, we need to sell it to them. You know, how do you price it? Well, this general rule of thumb: five times, six times. Yeah. Times. And I remember th thinking about that for years, and it's just come back more. Oh shit! Sorry, my seat keeps going down. You know, coming more into my mind recently of just like you know let's simplify this shit sometimes you know yeah but yeah you're right things you watch uh, silicon valley um which you know it's almost must have watching for anyone who's building a tech business i think fundamentals there and there was Is it the thing. um the, the comedy yes the comedy yeah, yeah i haven't seen that for eight. Is that still on no 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 it finished a long while ago all oh, right that's what i thought yeah, so yeah, yeah relevant yeah. now even yes. also with ai with <laughs> yeah, yeah. technology and stuff like that but there was yeah. a there was someone who had a business of selling pizzas and they were like, you know, their own pizzas. But what they were really doing was buying Domino's pizza and then just reboxing it and selling it <laughs> on. And they were selling it for cheaper than the Domino's were in the first place. And they were like, had some like, ideas about how they're going to make money until he went and thought that I ordered 10,000 pizzas and completely busted the company because, right. you know, it's just like they yeah. had fundamentals really badly wrong. And it was this, this VC injection of money. It's we're going to, when we get 100,000 users, we're going to do something with it. And, and, yeah, yeah. You know, it, yeah, it, I, I need to revisit that show because I remember really like finding it was hitting home in so many places. Like so when I watched good, it, good like, time as well. Yeah, yeah. Apart from that, it did have a comedian in it that got cancelled. Um, oh yes, he went to jail, didn't he? Um, did he go to actual jail? Uh, I believe oh, I really? won't say that with absolute certainty because yeah, <laughs> TJ something. Uh, Yes, it's uh, T.J. Miller. T.J. Miller. Uh, yeah, fun. which is a shame because I thought it was quite funny. But yeah, uh, no, he was good. But I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. He did something, did something wrong. He ended that way. 
Yeah, yeah, did some naughty stuff. Yeah, there was just the, the thought I, we just touched on it briefly, but I think it's worth just revisiting for a second, which is like um, about AI and, and and the job market and unemployment. I think it's a really interesting one. I don't have any answers for you on that, one, unfortunately. But like, mm. I do think I do see this problem. Of, we're talking about GPT engineer, and I'm like, what I'm starting to see is these AI tools today can do the job of of a junior data scientist or a junior coder or a junior graphic designer. Mm. What's going to be? It's really interesting to say like. Like if I was a if I'm a junior developer, let's say I have a coder, I'm fresh out of university, I've got my computer science degree and I want to get into JavaScript, right? I would take a job as a junior developer in a company, um, get a year or two experience, maybe work my way up to sort of regular software developer, a couple more years, senior software developer, and so on and so forth. And there's a kind of a well-established career path there. Mm. Um if AI is taking the jobs of the junior developers, I start to ask the question like, well, how is a you know, graduate, university graduate, what, what's their first job? Because mm. they have the experience to jump into a software developer. Um, how are they going to take that leapfrog? And, and and it's going to become hard, I think. And it's not just, you know, well, it's, it's in, not just software developers, it's data scientists, designers, graphics, you know, even the, to, to your point, yeah. sequence, uh, secret invasion. Probably a couple of interns, students, graduates haven't got a job because they use AI to do some of that stuff. And I'm like, yeah. what, what impacts that can have on the long term? Probably a full team of people, yeah. But I, I, I vaguely remember having a similar conversation with someone recently, and I think that the sort of place I landed on with this in my sort of thinking experiment on it, which I've done recently, was this idea that perhaps the, the education needs to prolong in order to cover that stage. So, so the, the experience that would have been gained from going into a job at that point that then leads to the next role and the next role and so on. The education needs to fill that gap. So it needs to, 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 to find a way to bring in that practical experience. So instead of going into the junior role, they go into that one above, uh, straight out of university or, or whatever it might be. That That's the, the, the only logical solution. The only problem with that solution, obviously, is that, well, as AI develops and it goes further and further into taking more and more senior roles, what happens? You can't just, you know, make uh, seven year, 10 year, 12 year degrees in computer sciences then, you know, like it's not practical to keep doing that. Otherwise, that's no longer, you know, at some point you've got to agree that this job is becoming obsolete and it's being replaced. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think there is a simple solution. There. And you're right; yeah. it's not just in that one area too. There's so many areas it's, in which trust everything, yeah. almost everything, right now. Yeah, I think, but, but it I'm also not... just makes things more competitive too. You know, it it does yeah, mean that people, it. you know, in the same way that right now you're more likely to give a job to someone who has shown that they've been working on their own projects and maybe building their own stuff and built up their own portfolio. I mean, that's just going to be, if anything, that's going to be exacerbated and it's just going to be even more prevalent and important in being able to secure a job. There's nothing wrong with, you know, doing everything you can to continually build your own skill set beyond what you've learned at school um, and, and refining your your tools and, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and it's just adding to that, in my view. You're no longer just competing against other candidates for a job. You're now competing against AI <laughs> yeah, basically yeah the, the jobs will, will differ I, I, I'm not sure 12 year degree programs is going to work in, in my view I think you know it's almost like bringing in the I've always said for a long time experience trumps education right mm. is and and you know some people have oh, well, you know I went to the University of Life you know I'm sure you probably know people as well they have the University oh, yeah. of Life they dropped out of school GCSEs or whatever and they can be some of the smartest people sometimes really successful very very rich and powerful people who mm. did not get a formal education because they just went straight in uh, with experience and they learned from the world and it's the hard way it's the painful yeah. way you do it but it, you know back to what we said before it hurts it, it's probably good i think 
we're going to see more and more of that. I, th I think universities do need to evolve and they need to start to educate, uh, sorry, experience, like industry experience in with education yeah. as well and becomes part of the course. And it's the vocational sort of aspects of, Absolutely. of what they do. Yeah, yeah, so software development, you know, uh, uh, sorry, computer science isn't just three years of sitting in classrooms. It's maybe by the second, third year, you're actually going and doing work with companies to help mm. them out in certain ways. And, you know, it's almost pro bono uh, development work because you're gaining the experience from it. Um, but I think what will also happen, start to happen is, is you know, so they think university courses need to evolve anyway, and they really need to also think very carefully about it. So, you know, work with some, like it's, what's going to happen to education where you can get a computer science degree online for free through YouTube, you learn the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're not sitting in the classroom with other kids and learning and, and stuff like that. And there's a lot of universities, not just about education, it's the experience and yeah. learning to be a person in the real world. That, that's, that's hard to replicate online. But um, access. I've done the, the open university experience twice. Right. Um, and it's interesting because the first time I did it, it was very different from the second. The first time I did it was years ago, like, mm. God, like 10 years ago now. Um, and it was very disconnected. I, I, I studied sociology and it was very dis disconnected from, you know, you, from anyone. You didn't really feel part of a, a, a class. Like they had forums and stuff, but it was it was very odd. And the, the more recent one that I did, which was my business management degree, you know, a few years back, um because I, I i actually did follow that route of, of education like you know, I, I i i flunked out of school i didn't do very well uh i was kicked out of school i wasn't particularly well behaved um <laughs> I, I managed to do only a couple of gcses at school um and then i, I but then i came back to education later in my life and i retook my gcses because i decided they wanted to do it for me to show that i could approve them myself yeah. and i and i passed them all with flying colors i worked hard on it and then i went back to academia and, and in fact was pretty much in a in a have, this is the first time in my my adult life since leaving school that I haven't ha been also studying something on the side. Um, so it's only the last couple of years, in fact, since doing the the business management degree. And and going back to that, open university experience completely different. Suddenly they're really leveraging technology to make you feel more integrated. They're doing occasional in person lectures. Wow at certain locations around the country that you can go and visit. Like they're doing, they recognize the importance of that community and, and learning from your peers and, and the vocational stuff too. And all of that um, is very important, but it's it's still gonna be vastly different from the experience you could get actually attending every single day in person for sure. Yeah, exactly. This is a lot of the university experiences Going to be hard to bottle it up but you know if you're talking one percent of the chart of, of the cost it's just more accessible to people uh, right i'll just you know just on your story I'll, I'll share one more thing about my own uh personal lifestyle uh life story which is not appearing on my linkedin profile which is actually before i went to, to leeds and study computer science um i actually went to manchester university to study physics um oh, right. i lasted a year and a half doing that before um i dropped out and um right. um decided it just wasn't for me it was it wasn't what i thought studying physics was was not what i thought it would be um, and interestingly, I was given a decision by my parents. They said, okay, you know, they, they've given me a bit of pocket money there and helped me out towards some things, but they basically said, look, what do you want to do? Um, you know, okay, you don't want to do that? Fine. Do you want to join the real world or do you want to go back to university and do something else? Mm -hmm. um, which I hadn't thought about, but they, they caveated it and said, look, if you're going to go back to university, you're doing it on your own. Um, we aren't helping you out. There's no more beer money or, or whatever, you know, whatever you were spending your money on. Um, yeah. If you're going back to university, you pay yourself. You, it's your way because we're not we're not sponsoring, you know, beer money and things. Yeah. And uh, it, it forced me to say, no, I'm going to do this for myself and pay for it myself. Uh, I did still have fun, but it meant actually, as I was at Leeds University, at one point I think I was working three jobs in parallel with my studies mm -hmm. um, because I needed money to 
to live and enjoy um and yeah. um you know i owned it and i owned the the um the degree i wasn't just there to sort my parents out it was my decision um, i did tell my mum you're not allowed to nag at me if you're not going to give me any pocket money <laughs> no more nagging me to do my coursework um but yeah. you know i did it and i found the ways to do it and um so yeah it's the, the you know like it's like the story that you would read about what people do is rarely ever the uh the, the, there's always these the reality of the hiccups along the road and the, yeah, the absolutely spots, um trodden but you know i will say as well just that year and a half going back to the point that year and a half manchester i learned how university works a little right. more so i took a lot to leads with me um and i kind of understood the systems there it meant just less to to learn less to understand what needed to be done and, and I presumably you learn a bit about your own shortcomings in the way that you interact with the university experience too right in the way that you best respond to yeah. certain things and you could probably put some things in place to ensure you were getting even more out of it the second time around third time yeah. round. because yeah, that's absolutely. something that i certainly was reflective on when thinking about my school experience and then you know as an adult learner i you know i was able to go okay i know that these things don't resonate with me as the way i learn and I can I can ensure to put myself in the best possible situation to learn as much as possible when I'm doing it out of my own volition. Like, you know, and it's funny because a lot of people have the perception because of the way I speak, because I can speak rather well sometimes if I choose to. Um, and because I'm from Oxford, right? Um, yeah. They assume, ah, universe, Oxford University, right? They, they assume that I'm university educated from Oxford, you know, with honours, all that sort of shit. And it's like, no, I was a school dropout. I, you know, went to college. I, you know, I, I tried out a whole load of different things. I tried music. I tried art. You know, I tried all these different things. And then, and then sociology. And I was interested in people. And then business. And like this, it's never a straight line, man. <laughs> like, you know? No, it never is. And it, no. you know, I get to people that, that I, I, some people that they're in their jobs. They oh, they hate their work and they're bored and this and that. What have you tried? Yeah, not yeah. Much. Right. You've been doing this since university, and you've you haven't tried much. Right. Well, then you know, maybe it is time to to get into the jump in the deep end. You know, yeah, I have other friends yeah. that have done 101 different jobs. You know, recruit bar work and and bar work. Yeah, bar work's great work. I, I worked in bars for years. I worked in restaurants for years. Yeah. Great work. Great work to get out of your shell to meet people to learn how to be a good communicator to deal with difficult situations, conflict resolution. So much. I've, I've I think it should it. be I've law. Worked in a bar. I've worked in a bar serving people there. It wasn't quite for me. I, it wasn't, wasn't much for me. <laughs> I've done all the, I've done, I've done newspaper rounds. I've done yeah. Sainsbury's and shop assistant, you know, and, and every job I'd learn. I'm not sure how much I learned from newspaper rounds, to be honest, other than I like, <laughs> worked in newspaper rounds going door to door. But, how to ride a bike. That's, um, that's yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, you, you, you do it and you experience and you figure out what you do like and what you don't like. Um, I think the worst thing is to just, is, is to not know. You know, that's, that's one of the things I know, I don't know if we're doing for time here, but like it's something that someone said to me early, early on when I was thinking about land work, I was thinking about what to do it. And it's cliched at most at this point, but there's so much truth to it, which is like, it's better to have tried and failed and to never have tried at all yeah right? yeah, um, yeah you know and to to wonder what, what if what if i could have done that what if i should have tried this um often things it, are cliched because they're they're true absolutely. Like, that's why they're repeated so often <laughs> yeah. yeah you know so but yeah you're right you just pointed out the time i, I completely lost track of time we, we are gonna have to wrap up but but what i i do like to tend to do sort of towards the end if you're if you're okay to indulge me for a few more minutes is um just to ask and look there's been plenty of, of this already throughout the conversation but just to acknowledge the fact that we are recording it because quite often i forget and we're just talking but to actually go back to that <laughs> like i did at the beginning um any tips for aspiring founders uh, entrepreneurs things that you have learned um, along the way that you would like to leave as your parting message to those 
uh, listening or watching that you know could hold some hold some value potentially or not if you don't have anything and you feel like you've already expressed it that's fine too but but perhaps some things that you could share some some little nuggets of wisdom mm. wisdom wis wisdom yeah um certainly there have been a few bits and pieces interspersed through our conversation um mm. what have i not mentioned i think i think one of you know what i can do is look back and go what where did i screw up like what did i do wrong or mm. where were my assumptions flawed fundamentally flawed um you know as i say i come from a product tech background so that obviously skews my perspective on it that direction versus someone mm. who maybe comes at this from um a marketing background or an entrepreneurial background or a VC and they would do things in a slightly different way. Mm. But one of the probably worst assumptions I would have made, which um, was born from naivety um, and from hearing things and you know whatnot, it's an old saying, it's like if if you build it, they will come. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I literally said this to someone today about that being a, a very big misconception. Yeah. Big, big mistake. It, one I made, I thought if I build the best product, then they'll, people will come to it because yeah. they will, they'll talk about it, they'll share it, things like that. Um, it can be true in a, the, I mean, the, again, we've talked about it. The, the one example which contradicts this is, is ChatGPT, where yeah. if you build it, they will come where they did it. And, and the reasons for that is, is because it's, it's so, so good it's so powerful what it does it's so easy to use and it has this inherent viral quality to it that well and that's about. what i was going to say if you build right. something viral they will come <laughs> but it's interesting what sam altman said because he goes for, for obviously he ran y combinator because for years and years and years he told people the advice that said you've got to build or viral sharing functionality into your product don't release it until it has those kind of capabilities mm. obviously ChatGPT did not have that at first now it does have some simple bits and pieces that he said something like, I'm now questioning every piece of advice I ever gave startup founders because I've just completely contradicted all of them myself, right? Yeah. So, you know, makes you wonder. But that is the exception. Do not mm. think you will sound like ChatGPT unless you have billions and billions and billions and billions to back like Sam, mm. right, and, and his team. Um, assume that they won't come if you build mm. it, right? It could be the best thing since sliced bread. Assume they won't come and mm. make sure you put an equal amount of time and thought into how you're going to get it in front of people who are you going to get it in front of and how what you get to say to them when you are in front of them back to what we said before about the personas and the messages um and i think you know i, I thought a lot about this it's like why was i wrong and i think i was probably going on old beliefs because i think 40 50 years ago if you brought a new product out uh a new bread slicing machine you know what maybe they will come if you build it because there's just not that much other stuff coming out mm -hmm. but the rate of innovation that's happening now and the rate of new stuff coming out being put in front of people is like never before in history and, and it's only going to get faster and so the noise that people hear your perfect customer will hear five or ten pitches for different products probably dozens and dozens and dozens across any given day and mm. ads and things like that that people's bullshit filters have been turned up to high mm -hmm. right and unless you are very very eloquent and clear about what it is you've built got and what it's going to do for them and how it's going to make their lives better um you will Full foul of that bullshit filter and the your perfect users will ignore you because you just do not talking to them in the right way you know come yep. back the horse said before about iterating stuff like that so just you know as i say you can have the best idea and the best product um don't spend 95 percent of your time thinking about the product and the features and the buttons and the color of this and the name of your company and the, whatever else think about how you're going to get it in front of people because mm. it's much harder than it used to be and building it alone will not bring an audience um yeah. I, I wish i thought about that 
earlier, I've come to that realization earlier than I had because it would have affected the way and the order in which I've done things. Maybe not what we've done, but the order in which we've done them in. And, mm. and maybe we'll have a few more uses than we, we have now. Um, yeah. You know, or, may, or maybe it would have been, you know, three, four years as opposed to, you know, five years or something like that. Who knows? It could have affected that timeline as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you, and I will say that, you know, like when you, when I listen to all the founders talk about their journey, very successful people, they'll, they'll basically go, here are the lessons that you should, you know, follow. And then mm -hmm. they go, we've made all of these mistakes and that's how we know it. So <laughs> you're still going to make a lot of these mistakes. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, if you have some awareness, perhaps you don't spend six months making a mistake. Perhaps you right. start making the mistake, and after a month, you realize what you're doing, and then you right. course correct from there. And, and that's it. the key, I think. And that's the kind of key that, that, as to why I like asking for this advice at the end of these episodes is because of, I know for a fact that a lot of people out there are still going to be doing what they're doing. And they're still going, well, this is what I decided to do, and this isn't going to change my mind. I'm still sure this is the right thing to do. Sure. But hopefully, this conversation resonates in their head. When they make that mistake, they go, shit, I've done that exact thing that Paul and Greg talked about not to do. So I need to change on that yeah. quickly as opposed to never hearing it and never thinking about it which is they will double down on that mistake and i think that's the problem you have to make a lot of mistakes for yourself in order to understand the importance of them hearing them from other people you know it's just like your parents telling you you know what you should and shouldn't do in life right you're still going to go out there and do the exact fucking thing they told you not to do oh, but yeah. you need to learn for yourself and <laughs> and, and so you know that's part of the mistakes so, you gotta make exactly but if it can if it can allow you to navigate away from those mistakes and you know quicker then that's an only a good thing and to know that you know even some of the most successful people in the world have made these mistakes and sometimes continue to make the same mistakes um you know sometimes yeah. in a different yeah. setting is somewhat reassuring i think yeah and you want to be just the right amount of stubborn like i said yes a strongly held <laughs> set of loose beliefs yes yeah, yeah. Cool, but be open to challenging it and, and and represent it just make sure you talk with people that that can bring a sort of unemotional um, viewpoint to you because people can react better to that. You know, if someone gets yeah, upset, yeah. At least it's not you're not going to end up very well. But if they can just like, look, this is why I think, and they're willing to sit with you and explain why they think what they are yeah. thinking, you can integrate your ideas together um, yeah. and end up with a with a. Oh, you basically just describe what I do for a living, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Okay. But yeah, yeah, exactly. That's no, the no bullshit approach. That's that's what I call it. Yeah, yeah. Radical candor, I think I've heard as well. You know, radical that. candor. I like that. That that you know, I should call it that. That sounds a lot more Oxfordian <laughs> than the way I describe. It. Uh, that suits my brand better, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Radical candor is important. Just like I said, don't. But if some people are offended by this, some people, you know, the truth hurts, right? It's so yeah, true, but it, it, it can. You should, you should look at my reviews, man, on Trustpilot. They're all five star, apart from one, and the the review is is it reads like a five star review, but it but it's effectively because um because it it hurt the feelings slightly, yeah. Yeah, and it, and that's fair, and I can't disagree with that. It's like yeah, I I did have to rip off the band aid with you because. There were some things wrong with your thinking, so I'm sorry. I have to point that out. That's what you asked me to do, right? That's my radical thing. You learn the most through pain, right? So if the yeah. truth hurts, then you're probably hearing the truth because you, mm. you don't want to hear it, the, the cold hard truth. And uh, but yeah. if, you, if you hear it and you understand it and you can take something from it, you will learn. You'll become better. And you'll grow from there and put out a better product, put out a better, you know, company. Um, mm. So, we yeah, all need radical. a bit of radical candor in our lives. I think um, I'm I'm going to rebrand, and and that's going to be my my new. I'm going to steal that. That's amazing. You are. Awesome. <laughs> I, I stole it. I don't steal it. I borrowed it from someone else. So um, you know. Oh, that's fine. That's ideas fine. can be shared. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely. Uh, 
We're basically AI now, then. We're just uh, stealing from Oh, the it's same ideas. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> the history of the world is regurgitated. Exactly. Yeah, there's, exactly. No with that. yeah there's, there's a whole thing of radical candor. I'll send it to you. Yeah, I'll appreciate it. Yeah. Well, cool. Listen, man, it's been really great speaking to you again. And uh, yeah, I hope I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I have. It's been really great learning more about you and 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 what you're doing at Landworth and everything. And it's super exciting, too. And, and you know, some of my guests often tell me that this is uh, quite a, an interesting exercise because it allows them to somewhat appreciate by verbalizing what the journey has been to actually appreciate that journey. And I hope that's been the experience for you to sort of actually have a bit of perspective on what you've achieved over the last five years and it's because hearing it is very super impressive and super interesting and hopefully you come away from this feeling the same way because i think you should um yeah no it's, it's it has been very interesting to uh reflect on the journey a little bit yeah you're right you, you just it's important to stop and smell the roses every so often yeah, so um absolutely. thank you for the time of that I, to anyone that's, that's watching as well that's made it this far anyone that wants to check out Lamworth, <laughs> um if you do go to www.lamworth.org um then uh you can check out our landing page trick great shader before if they want to sign up they can use the invitation code founders.unplugged and from there you can create an account um amazing needing to uh to request one first so um brilliant yeah. send that over to me uh that info in in, in a linkedin I'll message you, i'll yeah, make sure yeah. that's included in the link to, uh, in the description of the of sure. the, the audio and, and video I, I always put the website and link to the founders of my guests that i have on uh, for on LinkedIn in the description, but I, I'll include that code and everything in there too. Um, so yeah, awesome. We'll do. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Man. Uh, well, good luck. With the rest of the series recording it all. Maybe I'll uh, we'll come back again next yeah. season. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. We're probably. Yeah. I think I might now just continue just season two forever. I think that might be the thing. I'm not sure if I can be bothered with seasons anymore. But yeah, definitely. I'm gonna. You know, more than happy to have you on again in, in the near future. And uh, yeah. yeah. And obviously, we'll stay in touch and um, hopefully meet in person one day soon. But enjoy the rest of your evening and the rest of your week. And uh, yeah, I'll catch up with you soon, hopefully. Thanks, Greg. All right. Cheers. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching and or listening. Please like, subscribe and join the conversation in the comments below.